trap of drugs is it's not, not other people keeping it, you keep it and you keep yourself in it yourself by your own greed. How did you go from the army to becoming a drug kingpin? As I started seeing the world was changing. When I went to Army in 88, the rave scene was really just bubbling up at that stage. I was given a pill. Yeah. That changed my life completely. And I think I got sucked into it. One of the guys would go sort the pills out. So I was then going from doing a thousand pills up to maybe four or five thousand pills a week. So I then started to look at expanding the business. At the time there was an arrest went off, which meant I lost four kilos of cocaine, which was on Equivalent. tick. Equivalent. 80 grand. And that was on tick? That was on tick, yeah. And he said, oh, we've got a way you can bring it, you can pay it off. And I said, what's that? Do you want to start bringing it over? I don't like working with these people. Yeah. These are erratic. These people are dangerous. Was there ever a time you totally had the fear about something? Yeah, but I can't go into it. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Richard Jones talks us through being a face in the army to becoming a kingpin within the UK drug scene in the 90s. Rich goes into depth over losing £80,000 worth of pills and cocaine in one deal. This is the eventful life of Mr. Richard Jones. Rich, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, Dodge. How's it going? Yeah, really good, really good. Uh, very much looking forward to this one. So I'm very intrigued about this one. Mm. Um, so let's go on a journey. But let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you go from the army to becoming a drug kingpin? Yeah, so I grew up in Bristol, as you can tell by the accent. Lovely accent. Gert Lush, <laughs> isn't it? Gert Lush. Babber. My babber. <laughs> bling, bling, my babber. Um, I grew up in a place called Hembury, which yep. is standard council estate. The irony is I grew up in a police house. My dad was in the police force, so I was, I was born into a, um, a structured lifestyle, if you like. My dad served in the police, mum was a hairdresser. And uh, I got a younger brother, not much younger, but a little bit younger than me, about 18 months, nearly two years younger. I would say standard upbringing. Until mm. about 14 when my parents split, dad in the police force, very difficult lifestyle, lots of problems being brought home again. He also played rugby, so if he wasn't coming home pissed up from rugby, he'd be coming pissed up from the police force. Mm. Back in the 70s, my 80s, it was a brutal upbringing. Not for me, but the, the, the lifestyle that he had. Um, so my parents divorced it when I was 14. And I'm not going to start pointing fingers because there's no one to blame for that. It's just the way that it goes. But that had a kind of detrimental effect on my progression, if you like. Mm. My academic direction mm. didn't really stand a chance because I just wasn't interested. Mm. Lost full interest in the school, lost interest in what I was doing. When you say lost interest, were you at school not giving not giving a shit really? Or were you yeah, not learning? Was sport your way out? Was it you earning a I pound don't think note? either. Do you know oh, what? Okay. I don't think there was anything which appealed to me in school. There was there wasn't any subject matter which I thought, I like that. Yeah. That sounds good. Okay. I'll go for that. No, there was nothing there. And and back in the eighties, very limited on what you could do. Yeah. You know, if you're a guy, you're gonna go and work on a site. If you're a girl, you're gonna work in a kitchen or be a mum. Yeah. That was how it was. So for me, I just was not interested in anything mm. they had to offer. So really for me, I guess being wired up like my dad, I thought, well, this has to be something like that. Maybe the police, maybe something on those lines. And that's kind of had a, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, that's maybe where I'll go. Yeah. Aim, aim for the police force. 
But my dad did his best to sort of say, I don't want you joining the police because mm. look what it's done to me. Look mm. at my life. Look at where it's gone with me. I've got yeah. no, you know, I've, I've got a failed marriage. The police force probably isn't a good idea. Mm. So at the time, really, it was, well, what else is there? And um, I guess coming forward two or three years, I'd been becoming quite problematic in my upbringing. I was a, you know, I wasn't a horrible kid, but I was just a standard teenager sort of testing me waters, testing the way you see them, well, what am I going to do in my life? Mm. Random crappy jobs, nothing special, nothing of any substance. And in the end, I thought, I think the force is the way forward. Mm. I, I had a new stepmum, wasn't getting on with her. Again, not her fault. I was a, becoming a little shit. Yeah. So why, how, how is a 17-year-old kid with no real chance going to get on with anyone coming into his life? Mm. So I opted to go for the army at the age of back in the 17. Mm. And uh, I applied for the tank regiment. And... I think following year, May 1988, I joined basic training. Okay. And basic training took you where? Did you go on tour? Yeah, so basic training started off in Catterick in yeah. North Yorkshire, yeah. which it was an interesting experience. I wasn't prepared. Mm. I thought that's what basic training was for. I thought, that's it. They get you trained. But I didn't realise you had to do some level of fitness yeah. to be in there. So it was a culture shock. I mean, again, again back in the 80s, this was really non-PC. Yeah. It was okay to give you a good slap and a good mm. punch and a few digs. Mm. It's okay to give you non-PC nicknames, which I can't even go into, because mm. it'll probably get you shut down within mm. a few days. Mm. So it, it was hard going, but it did give you a degree of resilience. Give me some examples of non-PC names. Well, my nickname, I, when I did have hair, I had lots of dark hair. Mm. So my nickname was Spick mm. or Dago. Mm. And I'll just take it, well, okay, that's fine. I'll go with that. And that, that, that's a lighthearted one. Yeah. So that rode with me through my whole army career. Yeah. I, I'm still called that now by the guys that I've on Facebook groups. Said, right, mm. Spick, how are you doing? Mm. Oh, I've been called that for years. <laughs> 30 years later. Can't say that anymore. <laughs> I haven't got any hair. It's no longer there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was things like the, the nicknames you, you'd be called in. Did you did you find that it gave you discipline being in the army? Yeah, it gave me something I didn't have. Yeah. It gave me structure, yeah. which I needed, because without that structure, I was just a, I was off. Yeah. It, it's like it reins you in a little bit, and they use the phrase controlled aggression. So if you have got issues with anger, which I don't have issues with anger, but if you are inclined to be an angry person, it teaches you to control that, how, yeah. to, how to channel it and use it productively. Mm. So the army is very good at taking all of your wasted energy that you would use on silliness and channeling it into something productive and then you apply it correctly mm. and that's what the army does they're mm. very good at doing that how long were you in the army for in total seven and a half years seven and a half and tell me yeah. your journey from the, the moment you got into seven and a half years later so joining the army was a bumpy ride the mm. first year or so is always going to be quite tricky basic training is hard enough as it is and they keep saying to you wait till you get to your unit that's when it really starts and you think, well, why is this? And at the time in the 80s, Cold War was going, British Army on the run, you had the Warsaw Pact, the USSR, the Russians are coming, all that sort of stuff. What year are we talking here? 88. 88, okay. September 88. Okay. So I was deployed to Germany in 88 after doing my basic training, trade training to become a tank gunner. Yeah. Deployed out to my unit in Germany, three RTR, third Royal Tank Regiment. Why Why has been sent out to Germany? What was going on there? That's where we were. That's where we had the old East and West Germany. So you'd have the... the, the, the the imminent threat. Like now, look at this thing in Ukraine. People are shitting themselves about the nukes coming. We had that back in the 80s all the time. Right, okay. We got used to it. That's yeah. why I'm not remotely bothered by now. If it, if it happens, it happens. Yeah. 
You know, back then we lived with it. That's mm. what everyone grew up in that. So what were you did. doing in Germany then? Getting pissed. Yeah, okay. Mostly, getting pissed. Mostly getting okay. pissed. <laughs> it was ninety percent drinking, ten yeah. percent training. Okay. So and that's what it was because you're you're literally on standby. You're yeah. waiting for this attack, this World War Three, which never happened. Yeah. So a lot of it is training. A lot of it is drinking, and it is a drinking culture. Yeah. And in, I'll give an example of the prices. I mean, going back to, say, back 30 years yeah. walking to Naffy Bar for the first time, this one before the Euro came out, it's Deutschmarks. Yeah. Naffy Bar, I'll have a beer. You go in there, you get you get your money out ready, mm. so much, that's one Deutschmark. 30p. Yeah, okay. 30 pence for a pint. And was that relative, though, then? Or were you like, God, this is no, still really cheap? cheap. It that was, was cheap. okay. Back then in Civvy Street, you'd be paying... Maybe quid 50. about a quid fifty yeah, a okay. pound maybe yeah, yeah, for a yeah, drink. Yeah. Okay. So you're still looking at being like twenty percent. So you were training in the days, getting larruped at night with the boys. Was there? Yeah. Was it just a male orientated? Yes, very piss take, violence. Yeah, fights, so sport, garrison area. So if I describe the average day or the yeah. average week, yeah. so you do actually have a working week, Monday to Friday lunchtime. So it's poets' day, standard stuff, piss off early tomorrow. So that's that's the practice that yeah. we. So you go through your parade in the morning, you turn up, you get inspected, loosely because we're tankers, we're a bag of shit, we're messy, we're covered in grease and diesel, so we're not, we can't shine that much. Yeah. Down to the tank park where the tanks are parked, you would then go in the, the called a troop cage, sit with the lads, have a brew, chill out, be given a few tasks, maybe do some fitness, maybe do some maintenance on the tanks, service of sites, service of weapons. You might go on the ranges now and again. You might go and practice in the gas chamber, doing CS gas. You'd have these sort of various hold bits on, of- Hold on, You might go what? Go on the gas, gas chamber. chamber? Yeah, yeah, we get that? gas regularly. So we- The gas part, chamber? Part of the training back in the 80s and, and, and still is now is NBC, Nuclear, Biological and Chemical Warfare. So you would train for this imminent maybe attack from the Russians or and part of that attack could come in the form of biological or chemical so you get used to wearing respirators gas masks or your suits oh, wow. so these every single base would have a gas chamber it'd be like a shed or a garage you go in there you got all your kit on they lot up a couple of little capsules which are CS gas and you wait till the room is full of this acrid smoke and you take your respirator off and see how you get on with it <laughs> And that's about it. <laughs> Proper old school, isn't it? Yeah, you know, take your respirator <laughs> off. Off you go, boys. N- name, rank, and number, and then you wait until you breathe it in until yeah. you cough up, and, and, then, and you get used to CS gas. It stings, it burns, it, yeah. it does everything else. So that would be something you'd do maybe once a year, once yeah. every six months. And how long were you in Germany for? The whole duration. So for the seven and a half years, it was, it was Germany. I mean, because we, we were mechanised, because we were a tank regiment, we couldn't just bounce around because there's a lot of kit to move. So we did Northern Ireland as dismounted troops, so infantry, in 1990, went to Armagh, which is RMR, Senate of the Bristol Axe. Doesn't it? RMR. Who are? RMR. Who are So we go to there. We did six months in, in the bandit country, yeah. which I really enjoyed because we're actually doing a job. So yeah. you, you got flown out from Germany to Northern Ireland. Yeah. For what th- was that feeling being in Northern Ireland? I've had people on the podcast who spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland, mm. and it was like the British soldiers were hated. Yeah. Yeah. You've it, It's broken into the Protestant and Catholic areas. Yeah. So you'd be patrolling. We, we were in a little tiny village called Middletown on, on the border between Monaghan, so that was between the south and the north. And yeah. I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but that's how we branded it at the time. North yeah. and south. Some people say, well, it's one island. Yeah. That's down to their political yeah. views. We were in the north on the border. And you would have, a, say, a predominantly maybe Catholic area where you walk into that as a British soldier. You're going to get stones thrown at you. You're going to get spat at. You're going to get potential rots. You're hated. You're targeted that's accepted because you're doing a job and you're in a hostile environment. You go into a Protestant area, they love you. Mm. And you'd literally have a map marked, right, we're going from this street to that street. This is this is going to be, I'm like that, I've got my 
got me going. So walking down this street here, this is Protestant, we're okay. Yeah. Walking to a Catholic area, got murals on the walls of like the IRA and everything, right? Intense, right? And actually, start tensing up a little bit, yeah. and you start scanning your arc. So, literally, within 100 meters, you could be from a friendly into a hostile area. Simple as that. How do you deal with something like that? You're walking down the street, you've got a machine gun on you, you're with your pals, you're a tight bunch, and people are throwing stones or gob spitting at you. How, do you. how do you react to something like that? You have to sort of, this is where resilience comes in. You can't really respond. I mean, yeah, if someone's chucking rocks at you, you. you you have to take some sort of form of cover. Yeah. But if people are given you verbal, which is regular, they're yeah. giving you the shit. Example? You fucking Brit bastard. Yeah. That's what we used to get all the time. Yeah. You fucking Brit bastard. Fuck off back to your own country. Right, okay. Fair enough. It's just From words. kids, wives, families, anyone. You name it, everyone. Was it? Yeah. Okay. You name it. Yeah, everything. You know, you get the threats, you get the violence. You just look at it and you think, oh, it's just noise. It is just noise. Until it's anything more than noise, you treat it as noise. Mm. And that's what it is. You just keep on walking. We're kitted up. I mean, don't go on. We've got. Um, flat jackets on we've got cop vest bulletproof vest we're armed to the teeth if it kicks off we're going to be okay yeah. but you can't go around shooting civilians it's not really good yeah. for PR is it so if someone did get shot as a civilian was there a time when someone a civilian did get shot because I'd imagine the whole country would have erupted yeah no we never it would never engage we, we've got rules of engagement yeah okay and we literally we've got a card which we've got to recite so someone's a potential threat we've got to memorize this pr process which i don't remember what it is yeah, now okay. it'd be something like stop or i'll shoot yeah stop or i'll shoot you give them a warning yeah if they're running away you can't shoot them in yeah. the back if they're putting a weapon at you 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 you, you, you challenge them and if they don't drop it down you take them out right, okay. you've got to shoot to kill not shoot to maim you can't put one in the leg as a warning shot you've got to take right, them out. okay we didn't have to do that which is fortunate mm, mm. and and then what back to germany Back to Germany, so 1991, back to Germany in January. So we did the summer through 1990, early 91. Now, what happened at the back end of 1990 was the first Gulf War mm. over in Iraq with the old Scud missiles, the liberation of Kuwait. So we found at the time when we were, we were watching this on TV, we are in Armour City at the time, watching it on TV, we think, this is it. This is, this is going to be us. We're going to go to war now. So we're sat there chomping at a bit. Oh, I can't wait. This is this is cool. We're going to go to do... We've, we've done Ireland on foot as infantry. Yeah. Not perfect, it'll do. Yeah. Our tanks have been shipped out to the to Iraq, to the Gulf, ready for us. But we're going to get back to Germany in January. Two weeks leave, just a bit of decompression. It's been an operational tour. So despite what's going on in the world, we're still in the top a little bit of leave. Two weeks leave, back to Germany, right get down to Bovington, fly back to Bovington and Lowell to retrain on the tanks. We had a year off without even putting the trigger on the on the, on the the main armament, on the tank. So back to Lulworth, refresh yourself, get your competency back on the wagon again, and then back over to Germany to be shipped out to the Gulf. Oh, this is going to be great. We're yeah. going we're, we're going to finally do a job, which we were trained to do, yeah. i.e. get in my tank and blow the lid off some other tanks. Yeah. That's what we wanted to do. <laughs> So we got into the, <laughs> literally, like yeah. just, just peel the top off yeah, of it, yeah, open yeah. like a can. <laughs> so we got back to Germany to be told that we weren't needed, it was all over, it's done. The, the air raid was successful, it's all been, uh, liber Kuwait has been liberated, yeah. you're not needed. We were fucking devastated yeah. because the one thing when I joined the forces to go in a tank regiment is you would never expect the chance to actually go and use your skills as a tank gunner yeah. in the real theatre of war. Yeah. And it might sound a bit... Why would you want that? But you don't join up for that. But when an opportunity comes up and present, presents it. itself, mm. you grab it. Yeah. You think, this is it, I'm going to get out of there. So did you find that the whole time you were in there, the whole Germany thing, you did seven and a half years, you were dying to go out to war, war. It didn't happen. Did you, how many years was it in when you were like, 
you know what, I've done my time, I need to find something else, I need to do something else. When was that? So it started to come about around about 94. So when the... What bro- year was that for you, year six? That was year six, okay. yeah. So what happened is in 89, the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah. The old East-West dissolved, it became unified. So the threat of what used to be the Warsaw Pact, it diminished, it reduced. So therefore, if there was no longer a threat, part of the agreement was that, that we would reduce the size of NATO armed forces mm. over in Germany, which we did, which meant disbanding regiments, getting rid, no longer needed, mm. and amalgamating what was left. So we went from four tank regiments, which is one, two, three, and four, down to two. Mm. So that's one thing, so park that for a minute. So we've now got a new regiment in 92, that's fine. Operational duties in Ireland, great, loved it. Missed out on the Gulf, shit, that was a bummer. Mm. And three come up, we're going to get a tour, to, a tour of the UN. Because I was thinking of getting out, and they said, we're going to go to the UN next year, do you fancy it? I thought, I'm up for that. Mm. Cyprus, six months on the piss. Mm. That's going to be great. <laughs> so not, not, just, not just seven years on the piss in Germany, six months <laughs> in Cyprus, even better. It like, sounds like a proper lad's Oh, it's amazing, going, yeah. 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 Napa and Limassol for six months. I, I, I got some stories about that, which I'll go into. Um, so we deployed to Cyprus in November 93, yeah. thereabouts. Bit of a stickler with dates, you'll get used to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, So we got to, got to Cyprus, and it was like desert combats, the same ones that we should have been wearing in the Gulf, mm. the old light colours as opposed to temperate, which is a lot of green and mm. browns and blacks. This is temperate, lightweight. It was hot. We were in Nicosia Airport, which is the old abandoned airport in Nicosia, so we were, we were patrolling. Our job was to patrol the buffer zone. That's on there, okay. Patrol the buffer zone between the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots. Yeah. Basically, like it's like a, being a fucking dinner lady in a playground saying, I stop for us, don't each yeah. other, stop arguing, stop fighting. It's, it's achieving nothing. But the rotor that we had was three days on guard duty, which was basically standing on the gate, letting people in and out. Three days on patrol, which is three days patrol up and down with the roof down on a soft top Pajero mm. or Shogun. Mm. They're three days on the lash. Mm. So it was a good six months. Yeah. It was a really good six months. Now, at the time, I had lots of dark hair. Yeah. And it was quite, it was growing quite long. I was yeah. growing it out. I was growing yeah. it long. I don't know why. I just did. And when I was in Limassol, we got so used to going to the same bars that squad isn't known for telling a few little porky pies mm. now and again, just a little bit of bullshit, just mm. to entertain ourselves, mm. usually to see if we can get laid, yeah. but more so to see if we can get free beer <laughs> or both. <laughs> both if yeah. it's a win win, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, So I was, I was on my three day leave and I was down on my own because the lads are just some of the guys I was on in the team with were married. They wouldn't really want to go down. We had troop flats in Limassol, which meant it was free accommodation. We just rock up, turn up and have three days on the piss. Yeah. So I was sat in this bar in Limassol, which is Scottish. And I was getting really well with one of the guys that worked there. It was called Paris. He's a local Greek. And I just thought- Called, oh, called Paris as a local Par- Greek. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny, it was Pariskova. I was, okay. But yeah, yeah sure <laughs> okay, it was yeah. Paris. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know, how's that work? <laughs> Um, so I was telling them, just chatting away, and, and for some reason I just thought, I'm going to start lying. <laughs> I'm going to start bullshitting. I just want some, I'm running out of money, I need some free drinks. Yeah. And they, saw, they said about me, my background and being in the forces that, and they said, oh, what's, what's your background? So, uh, so I, used to, I was born in Cyprus. They said, oh, really, were you? And I said, yeah, yeah, back in the 70s. I said, my dad was based over as a British soldier in the, in the UMP, which is the, um, not the UMP, in, in the sovereign barracks. And she's over here. And then when the war broke out, and because the, the Turkish invaded Cyprus in the mid-70s, mm. I was born in 69. I said, I was a young child at the time. I said, my dad was married to a local Cypriot woman in Farmer Gusta, which is a whole city which has been 
abandoned because it's full of mines and it was part of what one of historically farm augusta is a, is a massive city in cyprus which no one goes in because it's too dangerous to mm. go into it's part of the buffer zone i said yeah we lived in farm augusta and then we my the war came off and i forget this right i said my mum and dad had to split because my dad had to leave the country quickly and he took me with him and i've never seen my mum since and she's from cyprus and I'm spinning this yarn and thinking, I don't know what I'm going to achieve by this. Next thing you know, the drinks are coming. They're free. So, oh, that's so sad. And he got Paris over and I'm chatting to Paris. I said, you're half separate? I said, yeah, yeah, half separate. I don't know anything about it. I don't know my mum's name or anything. And I think, what have I done? <laughs> Next thing you know, he's invited me to stay at his house with his family. Yeah. And they're putting up, giving me food and breakfast and everything else. And I started feeling really guilty because I was getting free drinks in this bar. Yeah. I was promoting the bar outside doing the old flyers. Yeah, yeah. come on, buy one, get one free. yeah. yeah. So I was doing this for like every night I was down there and I think starting to feel a little bit guilty. And they knew I was with the UN and we were chatting to Paris and his parents and they said, oh, they, they said, we, we, we used to live in the north before the Turkish invaded. I said, okay. They said, can you get over there? So the part of my job is I can go north, south or in the middle. That's, there's no restriction. They said, oh, okay, just wondered if you'd get a chance. Could you, could you find our old village for us? And out of a sense of loyalty and duty, I thought, do you know what? I've been a right fucker lying to you. I said, I really need to make an effort on this one. And me, somebody had put me in charge of my troop or my, my, my stick, if you like. And we'd gone on patrol about three or four days later on. So prior to that, I said, look, give me the address. Give me the, the map coordinates. Tell me the name of the village. Draw a diagram of where your house was. This is pre-mobile phones, mm. anything. No mm. sat-navs. Mm. It's just down to the old classic map. I said, just give me some ideas, I'll try and find it for you. So he gave me this crudely drawn map and the name of the town, and two, three days later, I'm on, on patrol. So I said to the guy, I said, look, mate, we're going to fuck off over to the north, we're going to go and find an address. So we looked on the map, it wasn't too far, it's about an hour into the northern half, which we're not supposed to do, but we, we could, we could get away with it. So off we went on this jolly, and we're meant to be patrolling the buffer zone, keeping the Greek separates apart, but for that, fuck it, let's go find this address. So we get into the northern half, and it's like a lot of it, unless you're on the coast of the northern half of Cyprus, it's quite militarised. There's not a lot going on. A lot of it is abandoned. So looking on their map, on the map I've got, they're drawn for, okay, I've found this, but the problem we've got is all the names on the streets here are in Turkish. And all the stuff on the map is in Cypriot or possibly English. So I had to go and buy another map, a Turkish version of it, compare the two, look at the names for, right, okay, it's that way. So mm. off we went to this little village totally abandoned i mean you're talking there's nothing there it's like it's been deserted for what at the time 20 years maybe just over 20 years look at this crudely drawn sort of thing for okay i think that might be the house there nothing there. there's like a few bits in the garden photographs taken on the old 35 mil took a few pictures took a few photographs of the local village hall little bits around the village and forgot about it went back did me other six days rotation nine days later on i went back down to limassol there you go, give him the 35 mil, said, I don't know, let me know. So I had me two days on the piss, went back to see him after the, the third day, and they, they come back, and the mum ran out and gave me a massive hug. She said, you found our house. And I found it exactly as they'd left it. They literally packed the bags and ran. In 1974, mm. 75, right then, they literally, the, even the, down to the stuff left in the garden was was theirs. Mm. No one living there. And mm. so I found the village. I found the, the, the school that they went to. And it made me feel less guilty about being mm. a twat lion. Mm. So then finders, their friend said, oh, can you go over and get a photograph of our house? And then they'd go on these little excursions over mm. the northern half, getting photographs of these different villages in towns. Because I felt kind of bad that I'd lied to them about mm. me being half Cypriot. Mm. 
<laughs> but it was hell of a jolly in mm. the end. Yeah, it was I quite bet. good. Yeah. I bet. But rewarding. And then, and, and then what then? So what was your movements after that? So Cyprus, we came back to Germany. When did you, when did you leave the army? 95. 95. When you left the army, what was your next steps? Well, the aim was to go into close protection. Yeah. So at the time, my dad had left the police force. He was working in CP work anyway. He was doing lots of protection, lots of surveillance. And I thought, Dad, I'm getting out. I've had enough. I met a girl. I want to make it work. I said, distance relationships just weren't working out for mm. me. He said, look, I've had enough, Dad. I'm been in it. He said, he said, all right, but you know, think carefully what you're going to do. What do you want to do? I said, I did allude to the fact that maybe the police, he said, don't bother. He said, possibly CP. I said, yeah, I can do that. So I did a course with Task International in Maidstone. It was ex-SBS. Good setup, four-week mm. course, plotted up an hotel, did a really quality, high-end CP course with them. It was armed. Because we were military, we, we could do arm practice down in a place called, I think it was Lydney Airport. We yeah. did the firearms practice. We did hostage rescue, counteraction team, escort sections, BG work. You, you name it, we what did work? it. BG, what's that? Bodyguard work. Body, so okay, it, it's basically a close protection officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did the lot, and it was cracking. It was a really good course. Really enjoyed it. And I left the forces in, handed me ID, and it was the end of August 95. Now, the problem I had was I did the course in April 95. Came out to a unit and my unit weren't there. Most of them had gone off to Canada to do something called op for, which means they provide op, um, enemy for other um, regiments over there. Mm. So I was back to a, a regiment which just had a rear party, which means just a few lads that are literally keeping the pilot light on. So I spoke to the guy in charge at, at you know, the RSM. I said, Look, I'm kicking around doing nothing. Can I just, can I just fuck off? Mm. He said, What have you got left leave wise? Well, I've got about three or four weeks leave left. So I got four weeks termination leave, and I said it leaves me sat here with like five or six weeks just fanning about. He said, "Just pack your bags and go, mm. go and get on your way. You may as well. You're not serving any purpose here." Mm. So I ended up with about three, maybe three and a half months on leave when I came out. So I got back to England round about, I think the beginning of June, mm. thereabouts. Which, as a squad, you come back with maybe three to four months paid leave is great. Yeah, but the problem I faced with that was. It's also three months for once of possibly being on leave, being slightly reckless. Yeah. Because I don't need to worry about working because I'm getting paid by the army still. Yeah. So the kind of aspect of my transition out of the forces into the into Civvy Street, if you like, on the face of it at the time seemed this is great, but on reflection it was really crap because I didn't have to worry about things. Yeah. So I ended up just kind of getting some casual door work, doing some surveillance work, and then doing some CP work, a bit of working with top card security, doing things like boxing venues, um, did Oasis gig in 96 at Nebworth, which these were all kind of little bits of a transition which didn't help me because I started seeing the world was, was changing. Yeah. Now, when I, went into, when I went into Army in 88, the rave scene was really just bubbling up mm. at that stage. Mm. Didn't really have anything to do with it. Mm. Acid House came in around about 1990. A little bit earlier than that. 89, yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's beginning to come in on the scene. Again, oblivious to all of this, yeah. the, the culture involved in that. But what, what I was also oblivious to was the fact that a lot of people that I knew were starting to engage in ecstasy and amphetamine. Yeah. Now, I'd already tried amphetamine on leave once, and I, I didn't realise I was off my tits. I just thought I was having a good night. Mm. And then when I came out in 95, <laughs> I was given a pill. Yeah. That changed my life completely. Yeah. Totally, and, and for different ways, different reasons. Do you remember what pill it was? Yeah, it was a dirty dollar, we called it. Was it? Yeah, <laughs> the reason I saw my friend, and um, <laughs> I'd just come off the door um, from the bar I was working in, 
and I got to the club which was which is called Odyssey at the time whereabouts uh, Bristol, Bristol okay, central yeah. Bristol yeah, yeah. got to the club and we're chatting they're all I'm coming down off of my uh, M, uh, and fat off the speed, speed. Yeah. I was feeling a bit oh, this, this isn't it he said why do you have a pill and Oh, fuck it, go on. And he just disappeared for like five, ten minutes and he came back and he said, There you go, mate. I went, Cheers, mate, thanks. So I just necked it and I said, I said, What are these our dirty dollars? Because he was already wasted. Yeah. He said, Our dirty dollars, mate. I went, Oh, God, all right, fuck it, down the hatch. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, in for a penny, in for a yeah, pound. I yeah. just so I necked it and then I think half hour later, 40 minutes later on, everything changed. The music got louder, the bass was booming, and I, I, I could hear people's voices across the club. Standard stuff. Yeah. But what happened as well was the hypervigilance, which I would been, which I have always suffered with, was gone. Yeah. No more. Didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Didn't care about what was happening over there. Didn't care what they were doing. Didn't yeah. care what was happening by that fire exit. Yeah. Didn't care who stood behind me. Yeah. I just cared about getting on that dance floor and dancing. <laughs> That's all I cared about. <laughs> were you a good dancer? Or you, Stand, thought you, or you thought you were standard mate <laughs> yes. yeah I thought it was great <laughs> I thought it was amazing <laughs> it was like standard dance music yeah. it, it, it's not elaborate but I just oh, mate it's the first time I ever let myself go yeah totally let myself go you can't beat the 90s for, for clubbing yeah it was that that and that whole scene from 88 music. from the acid house scene then, then going from the raves outside then going into the club in scene the clubs. Yeah. Was and that's when I got introduced into it in 95 yeah. when it was going mainstream into the clubs you had you, you, we, we was like gods. You, you judge Jules, yeah. Jeremy Healy, Dig all the these lot, yeah. big Brandon Block, yeah. all the massive. Brandon's deeds. been on the podcast. In fact. Has he? He lives down here now. Does he really? Yeah, he's moved yeah. down here. Great he's, bloke. He's, he just got that. He's like a cat. He's literally had ten lives. Yeah, because <laughs> wasn't he the one that turned to pissed up at the yeah. the Brit the Brit or Awards goes on it. stage? Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. I Mate, he's a Good he's stuff. a great bloke. Yeah, some stories as well. But yeah. so so what was the scene then? You said your life changed. From that '95, taking that your first E, yeah. loving it. Did you? Was, what, what was the next movements for you? Well, I think I didn't really have a plan after that. Yeah. The, the The whole plan was was. The whole plan was look for another E. When's the next weekend? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. When's the next weekend? Next and weekend, and we yeah. we kind of had a group. I, I kind of my door work. I've been that. I thought I'm not doing a door. Yeah. While I'm standing there watching these people having a good time, and I could be in there having a good time. I don't. That doesn't. There's no logic in that. Yeah. So I kind of started hitting me weekends. And I'd a, we had a, a close group of friends, only about four of us, but mm. we were really good mates. We'd, we'd stuck together all through my coming on leave. We'd go to Nuki on the piss together, yeah. bank holidays. We were a close-knit bunch, and we were all messing with ecstasy. Mm. And it was a case of that one of the guys would go sort the pills out. That would be our night. We'd, we'd have our night. That would be, that, mm. that'd be it. Now, he, in the end, decided he didn't want to do it anymore because mm. he was getting stressed. He was getting worried. And we needed someone to do it. So, like, okay, look. I'll go and get them. Ain't a problem. It's only four fucking pills. Yeah. Ain't a problem. So I went and did that. And then I got them a little bit cheaper and suddenly found out that I'd get mine for free. Mm. Oh, that's good. I've now got a slightly cheaper night because I've done what I don't consider as a risk. Mm. But other people would say, well, that's a risk. For me, it wasn't because I'm used to doing much more mm. risky things in mm. the army. Mm. So my, um, the way I would process risk and value it was, was in a, a different scale, if you like. And a lot of people who serve, they, mm. they have a similar mindset to that. So grabbing a small handful of pills of four or five wasn't really a problem, and that's really where it started. Yeah. I didn't really officially sell any... I didn't really go into the, the game of wanting to sell pills. It wasn't mm. really my aim. So this was going on sort of like the... I guess from the summer of 95, leading mm. up a little bit. And then we did a... We moved into 96, 
early 96 and I went to a rave it was the um, Pete Tong Essential Selection mm. in Milton Keynes Sanctuary and this is when for me this is the heyday of the pills yeah. we, we, we had a good group of friends we'd all sort of been socialising together and and we went off to this uh, this thing we had a load of pink callies at the time and I, I think I had like three for my night because <laughs> I don't normally eat many but I thought one or two would do me yeah. And I'm clearly absolutely hammered in this club, having the best time. And someone comes to me and says, oh, have you got any, what are you on? I say, oh, pink callies, mate. Got any spare? I thought, have I? Do I need any more? Have I got a spare one? I keep one for a second. And I, I remember lifting the little bag up and looking at it through the lights. And my mate says, fucking hell, it's your blatant. I said, hang on, one, two. Yeah, I've got a spare one. How much do I got? Oh, give us a tenner. Yeah. And that was the first pill I really sold to a stranger in a club. Could have been caught or anything. Yeah. I didn't really didn't really care at yeah. the time but I had the best night that was the first proper organised event I went mm -hmm. to which I mean you know school you get these big dudes these big gigs and they're proper yeah. aren't they? the, the atmosphere is unreal yeah. the people yeah. and like you say back in the 90s that's when it was its hey well everyone then. plan we'd all go planning you'd get mixed mag everyone get mixed mag everyone plan what weekend where yeah. they're going what they're doing the whole the whole build up was for the weekend to get on yeah. a two day the whole week yeah. you'd literally recover yeah. on a Wednesday I know like, what we do on the weekend. Yeah. Because you just start exciting, wasn't you it? You put your head up and go, Oh, I feel okay now, let's let's play. This for the whole weekend. new scene, this whole new world yeah. come to us. It was, yeah. it was just unreal. So so from serving accidentally selling your first pill for a tenner, what was the next steps from there? What went on? So I think in conjunction with that, these little bits happening around mm. me at the time. All that I left the army for, it didn't work out. It was never going to work out. She wasn't really involved in the, the, the nightlife that I was involved in, having to lie to her about taking drugs. And I thought, this is, just isn't working out. I was getting very promiscuous. I was involved in a scene where it was just, it was just, it didn't matter. No, mm. no one had any fucks to give. It was just enjoying. Yeah. And I think I got sucked into it, partly because at that time then I was beginning to miss the structure and the the sense of belonging which the forces had given me and that was quite powerful a very very strong sense of belonging which you have when you join up and when that's gone you've got this big old void in your life and i'm filling it with all this this rave culture which really seemed to make sense and and the taking the risks of getting involved in banging out the odd little pillar and there really seemed to tick a few boxes for me and it it made sense, it felt right. So the army had gone, but this rave or this, this dance scene, it really filled it quite nicely. Yeah. Almost carbon copy. Yeah. I mean, the job role was different, but it, every element of it added to my life in the same way that it, it, it replaced everything that the forces did have. Mm. And I ended up getting involved in just buying a couple of pills more, and, and it was a case of people would a good time with you, you you could see a good atmosphere around yeah. you you could feel that me being involved in something i was kind of not that i want to be a focal point that was never never what i wanted but to be the middle of something was nice because when i was in the forces coming to leave you're just just a little satellite on the outside you're not current with anyone yeah you don't know who's seeing it. you don't know who's, who's doing what what job they're doing you're always playing catch up yeah so you're always kind of busy playing catch up so you're never really involved in that community in the way mm. that you think you're because you're different then mm. your family is in the forces but for a change, I was that one in the middle, and I felt like I belonged to something, and it was a nice sense. It was false, but it was nice, and people would see that, and they'd come and say, oh, have you got any pills? And I said, oh. I said however, I, I'll bring some next week. So I started laying on a bit more than yeah. four or five. Oh, let's have 20, yeah. let's have 30, let's have 40, let's have 100, and it kind of plateaued for a while on 100 or 200 a week. And then we had a, something happened, um, made money to serve with actually, 
he was taking a trip back from uh, Liverpool and he rang up and he saw he explained what he was doing I saw we, we've had a bit of a duff we, we couldn't get anything can you get anything I said yeah we get them all the time mate no problem and we ended up he said well my guys don't know what a thousand at a time I thought oh, I've rubbed my hands. I said, "We're in the money now." It wasn't big money back. How then. much were you picking them up a pop each one? Back then, back I then. think we we're paying about on a thousand Fours and fives. four or five yeah, okay. quid, and that was on when they were still okay. And were you flipping them up for tens and fifteens? Or no, we were tens? banging them out in batches, so we were probably sticking about sevens and eights. So okay, we weren't batches. making huge okay. amount of money. Okay, it, but it, between I had a partner at the time, business partner, he's ex forces, yeah. and between us, we were just we were just spunking the money. Yeah, yeah, it was for our weekend, plain money, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that's all it was. Yeah. It, was it was nothing more serious, yeah. just just to afford our nights out. Yeah. It wasn't a lavish lifestyle, mm. but it was a lifestyle that we liked because we were both craving for to be to be a part of something. Yeah. And um, so the thousand kind of increased our buying power, which brought mine down a little bit. And when you, when, when you take the time and effort to count a thousand pills, there's always extras. Yeah. Oh, and there's a load of dust as there's well. A load of crumbs, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you've got all the dust and the bits <laughs> and the crumbs, bag them yeah. up into grams, sell that off. So you kind of go, actually, I'm not doing too bad. I'm making a drink on the thousand. Yeah. It's brought my buying power down, so I'm buying mine for four or five quid a yeah. shot. And I've got like 30 broken bits, a load of Percy for five grams of yeah. powder, which I can do that later on, and yep. so on and so forth. So I started to see what potential could be done with the... That's not quite wholesale yet, but it's getting there. Yeah. Did, you sen- it, did you sense at the time it's going that way, or were you just in it going, this is easy? Yeah, I yeah. didn't ever have any aspiration for it to go to where yeah. it ended up. It, yeah. just, it was just one weekend at a time. Yeah. And a lot of it was just chasing up money, getting the bill paid, get the next lot on. Flipping the money, groundhog day, yeah. constantly yeah. doing the same thing, and I think it start it, it, it remained that way until about ninety eight when I met my now my ex wife, and she wasn't involved in that at all. She fell pregnant with our first son, and he was born in ninety nine. The minute she we found out she was pregnant, and I think maybe it was a bit of a cry for help at the time because this time I've been three years on the go. Mm. And that's quite a lot. Mm. Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, smashed every night mm. and then spending a good two, three days recovering. And you might have one day of clarity where yeah. you're stressed out trying to get the money in. Yeah. So I thought, right, okay, that's it. Let's, let's get a job. Let's get a, just, I need a job because my parents were seeing me as someone that's signing on. Yeah. Obviously didn't know I was selling drugs. Yeah. I thought I need to change this. this Did is your no old good. man as a copper know anything that was going on at the time? He never alluded to or let on that he was okay. aware of it but I became really good at being evasive from a very young age okay. because of having a dad as a cop yeah. if you'd done something in the house and you knew you were going to get in trouble you learned to hide your, yeah. cover your traps pretty yeah. well yeah. so I guess I was trained from a young age to be evasive and avoid the police yeah. whether it was my dad or not subconsciously even yeah, yeah it's yeah. just a little software in the back of yeah. your mind so no one knew mm. or no one let on that in you anyway mm. um, so when she fell pregnant I just got a random job working for a, a textiles company delivering tea towels it was it was shit, but mm. it was a job, and on paper it looked better than what I was doing, which was nothing. Yeah. The problem with that is I also then stopped going out clubbing on the weekends. Mm. I thought, well, she can't go out, you know, because she's not going to be drinking. I'm not going to go out on me and leave a pregnant mm. girlfriend in the house, so I'll stay with her. So I stopped going out on week. I stopped taking pills. Started doing a bit of coke here and there, mm. but I stopped taking pills. So what I found then was I discovered Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I found these three days which hadn't existed mm. for probably three years because I was no longer suffering with a come down. Mm. So that boosted my motivation. I was driven a bit differently. And I found that working in a textiles business, delivering random tea towels and bath sheets to hotels, I had a van, mm. which was perfect cover for delivering my drugs. Mm. 
So I then started to look at expanding the business. I was always selling a bit of pot anyway, a bit of amphetamine. Never really got involved in cooking at that stage, but certainly the pills. So I was then going from doing a thousand pills up to maybe four or five thousand pills a week. Yeah. But the van was great cover. Yeah. Because all of a sudden I didn't have to worry about being in my own car. I had an excuse to stop off anywhere. Yeah. I had a tea towels I could pop into a, a a building or an establishment as a package. Within that would have been the, what they wanted. Yeah. It was great. So I started that job for about three years mm. and it really worked well. My son was born and I just continued on that track. Mm. But then the pill market died around 97, 98 yeah. when the, the drought came in yeah. and it just fell flat on its ass. Yeah. Totally flat on us. There was nothing around a good six months. Yeah. The mitzvahs were introduced, yeah. which gave it a rebirth. Then the price war started, yeah. buying them for pence. Literally yeah. pence. They were you, pennies and Mitsubishi's coming. You, they were cheap. They were quid a pop, weren't they? Yeah, we were buying. We were buying ten thousand for like forty p's. Wow. And we, but we were only making pence. I was selling them yeah. in thousands. I was only making like hundred quid on a thousand pills. What is the wow. point in that? Once you pay the wage yeah. and storage, forty quid. Yeah. Crazy. That's that, that, so yeah. what I can't. Also, I start selling coke then. There's a market there. <laughs> so, Here we go. Yeah, so that's when it all started. So around like 2000, and, it was about 01, I kind of started entertaining yeah. selling coke, but in bits and bobs, nothing major. I, I, I was sort of like, again, a friend of mine, was, I was using his buying power through a, a guy who used to work up in the Midlands. He would bring stuff down. I'd grab a few bits on top of it and just test the water, see where it's going. Still sell some pills because there was still a market for mm. it, but it wasn't worth just doing it. So if I'm going to go and deliver some coke, let's... Let's, let's provide a, a comprehensive service, if you like, mm. which is what I was doing. And I didn't really take it too seriously until about 2002. Mm. I just finished, just got married at this stage. I thought I was getting fed up with just buying it in and selling it on. I thought, let's just, let's just start fucking with it. Let's start making our own up and repressing. I spoke to a friend of mine and he said, yeah, I'm up for that. He's got a good market. He's got all the contacts. I just had the idea. So we got in the press and the moulds and the, the, the various things we've mixed with it and we started cutting it ourselves. And that's when it kind of really started. So about 2002, it really started to pick up. We're doing a lot. Give me an example when you've got the press in and so the listeners understand what is that for? So what you do is the, the, the correct phrase is adulterating the drugs. You're cutting it, stamping on it, pressing it. So you're mixing maybe one kilo into three four two however you far you want to stretch it depending on the customer base so you would have a mold maker made out of let's say a very strong metal yeah. stainless for example i don't want to give away too much don't seem to be telling people how to do it you'd have a mold you'd have a 10 ton hydraulic press which is used in garages for taking out things like bearings it's just it just because it's got a ram that comes down you'd literally package the coat remix it put it into this this uh, mold and press it down under 10 tons of pressure Pop it outside, there you go, one solid block, job done. There you go, on you go. So, for example, how much was a key back then for you? So, the first time we started getting keys back in is about 02, and we were paying around about 27 grand. Okay. And it was good. And when you're, when you're looking at, like, when you bring in a kilo there, what was your initial? Going 50 50? How are you splitting it? So, I mean, sorry, he was doing the majority of it. Yeah. So, it, we, we might take one and turn it into three, okay. which is what the average thing we would do. He would be probably putting out about two and three quarters of that. I'd yeah. be just like doing a nine. Yeah, and they'll be sort of testing the waters without well, seeing where it goes. When you say testing the waters, when you're splitting the cocaine up, and then you are going, okay, well, a third of it's cocaine, two thirds of it's not. Mm. What was the other two thirds? So at the time we were using something called mannitol at the time, which I think is something to do with horses. 
I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's some, so it's it's a it's a, like a benign white powder. Okay. I think the common misconception is that people use things like rat poison, washing powder, speed. Yeah. You wouldn't want to kill your customers. Yeah. You want to keep them happy and on yeah. board. So use something which is either, either maybe um, uh, which, which has no real effect itself, or something which can offer like a placebo effect. So there's various things that we would use, and across the years, as we got further and further involved in it, we gained access to different um, suppliers which could provide you the cutting agents. And in 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 the end, sometimes the cutting agents were worth as much, if not more, than the coke itself because. Yeah. The value of a drum of caffeine, for example, we some people pay two or three thousand pounds for a drum of caffeine for twenty or twenty. I think it's twenty kilos, but that in itself, one kilo of that is effectively probably worth ten, fifteen, twenty grand. Yeah. Because you're getting you mixing it with with ninety yeah. percent pure. Yeah. Other things, benzocaine, novocaine, lidocaine, anything ending with cane. Is generally fairly Harry good. Kane. Harry Kane. Harry <laughs> Kane. Yeah. Michael Kane. Michael Kane. <laughs> Chuck him in the mix. Here we get on there. <laughs> so let's go back to that. You're bringing a key for 27. Yeah. You're splitting it. You're taking a third out. What were you selling that key for? So they were very, I think at the time, nines were going to about seven and a half grand a nine. Yeah. Okay. So in average, you get one at 27, then yeah. you get it three kilos. Yeah. You know, that's 12 sevens, that's what, 63, 70, 84. Wow, okay. So that's... There's some big dollar in it. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good sort of market. There's a good 40, 50 grand in a key. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, when, and uh, when that first started, where were you doing that? Were you doing it in... in Various places. Various, okay. Yeah, you're on you, the move constantly. You'd have to, yeah, you'd move. You, you'd find people that you trusted yeah. and they'd rent out a room, maybe. Yeah. I've been in a position where I was doing better. I would rent someone a flat. Yeah. And say, right, they go a two bed flat. I'll put you in that. You live there rent free. I just want your spare room. Yeah. And did they did they know what you were up to? They'd have a good idea. Yeah. Did that not make you paranoid knowing that other people and knowing what you're up to? Because it, you know you're saying you're evasive growing yeah. up as your old man's a copper. Surely you'd go somewhere where no one knows nothing. Well, that's a difficult thing with that with that industry. In order to to make sales, you need customers. There's always going to be someone that's going to know. Yeah. Building a network around you, you have to, you. You get this stupid sense of, I suppose, invincibility where you think you, you think you might get caught, but you just hope that you don't. Yeah. So you have to start trusting people. If you're going to expand, you have to trust people. There's only so much you can do on your own. Mm. And if you're bringing in, let's say, for example, one or two kilos, and you're turning that into six or seven, yeah. and doing it all on your own, so you're taking a trip to London, yeah. Liverpool, pick it up, you're doing the corridor, the M4 yeah. corridor, doing the M5, whichever one it might yeah. be, so you've got one meeting there. Yeah. That's one chance you can go wrong. Yeah. Generally in transit, you're okay unless you really fuck up and crash. You're yeah. driving like a dickhead, yeah. which you shouldn't be doing a job anyway. Yeah. You then got to think, right, I've got to repress this. So you've got to do all that on your own. Yeah. That's hours of work. It's not a quick job to do to come to turn one into say maybe three or four. Mm. Sometimes more, depending if there's a drought. You're looking at several hours of hard work in a room in a house where the door could go any time. That is really heavy power on because you're you should mask up, should club you don't. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, these are the days you get in and just get on with it. Yeah. So you're breathing in caffeine, you're getting palpitations, you're breathing in the cope, you're not getting the you're not getting the plus side of it, you're just getting the, 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 the negative side of it. When you were when you were going to collect the cocaine mm. from your London or your Liverpools and bringing it back, where were you testing it? 
So I take it on face value. So once once you've got the link yeah. and you know that the goods are good, does any, you only really have to test it on the first meeting yeah. to make sure that they're that they're genuine and it's any good. And I wouldn't be sniffing that. There's no no chance I'm going to go and have a line yeah. and start thinking about carrying that back. Yeah. Either you take someone with you as a guinea pig, yeah. or you look at it and you just you either wash it up, which I don't know. You convert it into crack. You you, you do a measurement test. So you either you you weigh it a gram, you clean it. You make sure it's dried out properly, as it should be, and then you weigh it again, it comes back at 0.7 a gram, it's 70%, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's an indication. But washing up a, a gram is a dirty, filthy process. Yeah. It's effectively making crack, which I just threw in the in the bin, didn't yeah. want it. But it's the only way to really get a surefire way of testing how pure it is. Mm. So Was there sense. ever a time where you, were, where you were dealing with the wrong people, where you were totally out of your depth? All the time. Yeah. Most of the time. The early days, you, as I said, this minefield, you meet people, you think, I don't like working with these people. Yeah. These are hard work, these are erratic, these people are dangerous. Yeah. But in that world, you meet people, and when you're making them money, they're your best mate. Yeah. When you're not, they're, they're not your you. best mate. They're yeah. on your case. You're no good to anyone. Mm. Was there ever a time when you totally had the fear about something? Yeah, but I can't go into it. But th th there are times when you've had enough. I've been sat. I, I admitted myself to hospital in 2007 because I'd had enough. I was trying to get this debt paid off and I thought, this, I can't do it anymore. Were well, you myself. using as well? No, I'd binned it by then. I'd so stopped. You'd binned it, so yeah. you were clean, so your head was straight. I clean you still head. had this debt, but yeah. you were under serious pressure. Yeah, the pressure was immense. Mm. It was immense. I, I'd had enough. I was going to try and take my life in 2000, November 2007. I'd, 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 I'd had enough. No, 2006, sorry. I'd had enough. You were going to take your own life. Yeah, I was ready to die. I was literally. I checked into the local hospital in in Bristol, into Frenchy Hospital, risk of suicide, um, mental breakdown. And I went in there and I said, look, I, I, I couldn't tell them that why I'd had a mental breakdown. I said, look, my business has gone completely tits up. I can't face it anymore. And they they diagnosed me with, with um, severe depression. And the following day they dis they discharged me. And I was sat in my car. And I was sat on the passenger side and I was sat and I was thinking. My phone's been off all night because I was meant to be collecting money up. I'd had enough. I was meant to go and collect dough up, and I just switched the phone off, which isn't like me. Not even to my wife. No one. I told no one nothing. Switch your phone on. There's a load of missed calls coming through. A load of messages coming through. And I sat and I just looked and I had a knife in the dash in the in the glove. I was picking on my wrist and I started thinking I'm, and I couldn't do it. Just sort of like think, thought of my sons and I thought I can't do this. Thought of my boys and after that I thought, no, you can get you can get through this. So I then went to the doctors, got me happy pills. Within three days, I was in a different state of mind. I started to sort of manage the day to day. So the imminent threat or the feel of anxiety and stress had been sort of reduced significantly enough for me to sort of focus on it. And then the opportunity came up the following um, following year. This was like back end of 06, early 07. The guys that, or the chap that owed the money to, he said, look, you know, he said, we got away, you can pay off a bit quicker. I was down to about, at this time, about 30 grand left on the debt. And he said, oh, we've got away, you can bring it, you can pay it off. And I said, what's that? Said, Do you want to start bringing it over? I said, uh, fuck it, why not? <laughs> so, yeah. That was your that was your get out. That that was the, the opportunity then to start paying the debt and become useful again. Yeah. So it was then offered the opportunity to start looking at it going over to Spain to link up with people over there and start being part of a smuggling operation and bringing it from Spain over to the UK. So that was the opportunity I had.
which when, I embraced. When you had that opportunity, were you immediately like, yeah, I'll have this, a piece of this? Didn't think twice. Okay. Not even a second, not even a hesitant thought. Yeah, fuck it, why not? Tell me what your route was. What did you do? Did you have to fly out of there? What, was, what, what did you have so to bring back? So I did three trips, and luckily I didn't have to carry anything on the trip. So the way that it played out was the aim was to, they wanted me to bring back a couple of kilos for them. And Equivalent were, price back then, roughly? O- over there, they were 20... 2,000 euros a yeah. piece okay. or 20,000 euros a shop and the, the exchange rate was about 1.4 at the time so right. it's, it was a 15 grand 16 grand like okay. yeah yeah it, it wasn't it was it was worth it yeah. definitely worthwhile considering they could, probably, they could easily double the money yeah so got over there the aim was I was going to put this well orchestrated plan the aim was to go to um, Barcelona which is the, the pickup point perfect that's just over the border so what I'm going to do it's February it's cold. I'm a keen skier. Let's let's put on the guys. I'm going to go skiing in Andorra for three days. So off I went. Got the boat down. We changed the money up in London. Changed up from English into into euros in a in a dodgy little shop, which you could do then. Um, get 500 euros back. 500 note. 500 euro notes back, which yep. are reduced the amount of mm. money you're carrying mm. uh, from a, a small holder to an envelope, which mm. was quite handy. Mm. Get that over. Then even then was to go down to Andorra where I'd then book into a hotel, get a lift pass for three days, which is what I did. I paid for the lift pass for three days. Hotel for one night because it was a long old day. And then the aim was to meet the guy over in, in Barcelona the following day and then pick it up and bring it back up through. Got a phone call. So, oh, by the way, you're not going to Barcelona. You're going to go to Fengarola. Where the fuck's that? It was mm, yeah, just, just a, just a yeah. bit further down, <laughs> like another day's drive. Yeah, yeah. So it's Fengarola. So I got down there that night about 11 o'clock to meet my... That and um, Scouser of all fucking people. I thought, oh, here we go, please don't do this. So he put me in a hotel for the night. So I, he said, All right, lad, we'll, we'll stick you in a hotel. You've had a long old drive. I thought, Yeah, it's fine. So we'll come, I'll come and see you in the morning. I'll we'll look over your car, check it all out, make sure everything's okay. Yeah, no, no worries, mate. So I had my hotel. I thought, This is all right. I'm in the hotel and I'm chilling out. Mm. First time in a long time I felt relaxed. It wasn't hot, but it wasn't cold. Mm. It was Spain, south of Spain in, in February. Mm. It is what it is. So I'm just relaxing, not really thinking about the potential of what is going to be going on in, in the coming days. And he said, we're just waiting on the kit to come through. When I saw the next day, let's have a look over your car. Just want to make sure it's okay for doing what you've got to do. I had a renter. It was a Passat, Vida Passat, dark. It was, it was a blender. It was, yeah. it was fine, did the job. But, but little did I know, it doesn't really do the job because a renter car over to, to Spain for three days is a, is a red flag for yeah. customs, yeah. as is a single guy driving the car back over is yeah. also another red flag so he's looking over the car pop the boot open and in the back of the boot i've always got with me my army sleeping bag because you never know what's going to go wrong if i got that at least and also for me it's a get out of jail free car with the police if i get pulled by the police and the army sleeping bag is a talking point yeah. so ex-forces you know and you get a little bit of a touch sometimes yeah. if they served in the forces you might have a little touch so i have multiple reasons why it was in there and the guy looked in the boot he said what fucking unit were you, mate? So I was a tanky. He goes, oh, I used to be in the Royal Green Jacket. So fucking squaddy, perfect. Straight away, bang, we're mates. Instantly. So right, look, lad, come with me. It's going to get something to eat and have a sit down. So straight away, the whole relationship changed immediately. Yeah. We had that common ground. He said, look, what's the crap? This is what we're going to do. And he said, look, I'll be honest with you. You fit the description of a smuggler. Your car fits the description of a car used for smuggling. He said, We've got stuff going over the border anyway. So you work with us. 
and we'll take your stuff over for you. We'll save you doing that channel. That 20 miles of water, of which fear. is very of yeah, pure yeah, fear, because yeah. I hadn't even planned I was going to smuggle it yeah. over there. He said, we'll do it for you. You just help us out on our, what we're doing. Oh, yeah, no worries. So do that. So then we bonded this this relationship between me, him, and this other ex-squaddy who was, was like the, the enforcer, if you like. So there's three of us doing this. We did it for like two or three months, just bouncing up and down across the border, which worked well. So I didn't have to, have to carry anything. I just literally drove a car ahead and just checked that the, the, the various payers and the, 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 the tolls were clear of police because yeah. they do have police on them now and yeah. again, especially when you're going to cross the border by, um, by board, um, Bilbao. Yeah. So that's a bit of a heavy border. So mm. there's crossings we got around there. So the trip would have been usually, because we were picked up in Madrid in the end, was meet up with a Colombian sort of like firm in Madrid, grab what you need. And then the guy in responsible carrying it would be in a different vehicle. Mm. And we would escort him, like a satellite yeah. escort him across, um, up through Spain, up through Bordeaux, past um, Paris, up towards the Channel Tunnel crossing. And over we go. And so is the Channel Tunnel you're coming through? No, the guy would, was a courier working in Europe, so he wasn't even English. He'd yeah. come across and he had a regular transit across anyway, so he would then be given the goods. Mm. He would take it across. And then that, that was kind of outside of my... Yeah. You know, that was something they had going anyway. But you were still getting paid full whack for doing still that? Still get paid, yeah, because okay. in turn, what I was doing, because I was working for them, yeah. they would then make sure I got paid. So I'd use the money for them to live on. The money got paid from these guys, I'd start paying the debt off. Right, okay. Which I secured the debt, I paid it off the back end of 2007. Right, okay. So some, yeah. And then, and then that relationship built into, into what? Yeah, so all these 18 months of pure hell of trying to pay a yeah. debt off, applying myself to get this reduced the size of this hole in my life once that hole was paid off i thought i've got some disposable income now because at the time i've been building new contacts slowly rebuilding my business so i found that over the beginning of 2008 i then took on a new runner good mate x forces took him on i took on something else i started to build it again and i found that my customer as i've proven myself that i was not I'm the sort of person that if I've got a bill, I'll fucking pay yeah, it. Yeah. Whatever it takes, I yeah. will pay that yeah. bill. So people trusted me. You know, I was really trusted. So I started, I was introduced into new networks and then it went from sort of 08 into 09. I was really sort of then at a the point where I was doing anything between nothing and 10 kilos a week. Yeah. You know, it, it would vary. Yeah. It would sometimes be nothing. Sometimes it might be more. So you're doing from n zero a week to 150 grand a week in cocaine. Yeah, so profit-wise, I wish. Yeah. I wish. So but by this time we come in, around about 2009, we, we were suffering with some issues with cocaine coming through properly. Yeah. Certainly into 10, but we'll go into that in a bit. So the, the amounts that could be made, it was such a competitive market at this stage that everyone was yeah. jumping on board. Everyone yeah. was doing it. Benzocaine was rife. It was anyone could find benzocaine. Anyone could find caffeine. And they could find it in bulk as yeah. well. So... The price for a start with cocaine, and yeah. like the ecstasy market, the prices were driven right down. So there came a stage around about 2009 where nobody really knew what proper coke was, because yeah. they all get all they were getting was heavily hit stuff with benzocaine, with lidocaine, yeah. novocaine, caffeine, pub grub, pub grub, mm. exactly that. It was like buy 20 quid for a gram. Well, you're not getting yeah. much for that, are you? Yeah. But that that was what people got used to, and it became more of a placebo than anything else. Yeah. So the price for a start is really you'd be looking at then you'd be selling kilos out for like 15 grand 20 grand but mm. they might be luckily it might be like 10 percent wow horrendous wow that's terrible great from a 
seller's point of yeah. view, but crap from a yeah. user's point of view. But then again, it is what it is. That's mm. the market. It's a greedy, ruthless, mm. selfish individual's market. Was there ever a time in this period, 09, 010, where you're thinking things are coming on top? You know, you were brought up by a copper. You knew and you got a good sense. You got a good feel. You're not your normal, typical drug dealer. You're a chancer who's gone, you know, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. This is easy money. Did you ever get a gut feeling of something's happening that doesn't feel right? Yeah, so as you go through, you you would be foolish to get involved in that world without knowing that if you don't stop at some point, you're going to get caught. Yeah. The only ways out of it, when I've always looked at it, is there's three ways out. Die, you get caught, or you actually make it. But the last one's a little bit moody because... You're only going to make it and stay in that industry for all that time if you turn. Because, let's face if it. If you turn what? Turn and start working with the police. Oh, work There's with the very, old very okay. few people I can actually, I'm not going to say everyone, I'm not going to brand everyone, mm. but very hard to go through that industry and be at a certain point where you're making that much money and doing that well without people knowing what you're doing. Yeah. And if people know what you're doing, yeah. so do the police. And then jealousy kicks in as well with jealousy people. Kicks in, yeah. And at that point, when you get to that point where you're making that much money, it's a classic case out of layer cake. When, they make, you, when you make that much money and you're doing that well, you don't care about any. All you care about is losing your money. Yeah. You don't care about anyone else. So the indication I got was, so 2009 was my first close call with regards to um, an arrest. Motorsport, was, I'd, I'd set the motorsport company up. I was doing launch motorsport, doing track days. I was doing time attack. I was starting to race at a semi-professional level. I was, we branded it as living the dream. I really yeah. was living the dream because I'd gone through two years of near hell trying to pay off that bill. Yeah. Finally, I'm making some good money. So I thought, let's channel the money into a business. Let's do this properly. I might not get another chance. Let's make something of it. During a recession where no one else has got any money, I'm doing really well. <laughs> Everyone else is fucked. I'm doing really well. Yeah. So I'm plowing money into cars, to, to tune the cars, to yeah. racing. And I'm beginning to think, I'm on my way out. I can see my exit strategy. There, there's the door. Mm. That's my way out. And this, this new lifestyle is giving me all. It's ticking all the same boxes that the drugs did. Mm. It, it, it gives me structure. It gives me risk. It will bring money in in time. So we were becoming quite. I say we because I had a, a team of people with me. Mm. Both had a, a, a drugs network of people, mm. and I had my my company mm. profile as well. Not massive, but it was something. It was yeah. picking up. And then 2009, I think it was a back end of October, we were due to go on a meeting, and, and my dad and his friend were due to come and pick me up, take me for a meeting with someone, something to do with an airfield to do mm. to, to um, uh, so we could go and look at another event. Knock on the door at about seven o'clock, that's my dad's fucking early. There was a load of suits to Darfur, and, and they said, oh, Rich Jones said, yeah, yeah, so it's um, West Mercia Police. I went, oh, okay, he said, we've got a warrant to search your house. I went, and straight away I thought, fuck, this is it. Of course, my wife then is like, what's going on? No, don't worry, it's fine, don't worry about it, I don't, I don't know what it is. Because working in motorsport, you can you can get pulled into criminal circles yeah. anyway, so I have no idea. So they came in and the warrant said to search for evidence of unexplained wealth. And I thought, it's slightly ambiguous, isn't it? What 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 exactly is this for? So we just got a warrant to search premises. Yeah, fine. There's nothing in the house. There's nothing there. So I'm thinking what have I got in this house which could cause me a problem? So I'm sat in the kitchen with an officer, and they're, they're really pleasant. Not, mm. They haven't nicked me. Mm. They just they just got a warrant. My wife, or then wife, is then going out doing a school run. I'm left in the house on my own. My dad's outside in the car with his mate wondering what the fuck's going on. Mm. Um, of course, old 
ex-old Bill, he's, he's really questioning mm. things. And I'm sat there thinking, there's one thing in this house which could cause a problem. There's only one thing. Everyone else I'm pretty sure is clean. And in the kitchen, I used to have to keep a, a list of money that was owed in, mm. money that's owed out. I had to keep a record of it somewhere. But I was always quite mindful that if you have a list that which is blatant, yeah. that's evidence in yeah. itself. So mine was written on the inside flap of a box as crackers mm. and open the flap in pencil it written in very very light with just initials with mm. a number next to it and I thought if they search that cupboard over there and they find that box and they see that written in there then they've got something yeah. so I had to think right, I need to come up with an excuse to get to get rid of that fucking box so they're searching the house and they're making their way downstairs and they're getting through and I thought I've got to do it now I've got to do it now right, okay breakfast it's about Half nine. So the officer that was keeping on me said, can I get something to eat? He said, yeah, fill your boots, mate, carry on. So I went over to the cupboard. I got some butter out of the fridge and I got these crackers out and I, I sort of like laid three or four crackers out, but they'd been open for about six months, mate. They were stale. Yeah. They were like, and I, <laughs> the, the aim was to just, I'm trying to spread the butter on and they're just sticking to the <laughs> butter. And I was like, I just eat them like, oh, they've gone off really bad. So I crunched up the box, threw it in the bin. And left it in that for okay, so we didn't search. And the police eventually came round to the kitchen, and I think it was only two of them came in. They just literally opened the cupboards, looked through. That was it. They didn't even bother looking at the content. They weren't searching that hard. So the evidence that was there was in the bin that was mm. gone. They didn't check the bin. Had they seen that, that would have been an indication that mm. something was going on. But they didn't. They got rid of it. So that was in two thousand and nine. So this was associated with someone that was a customer of mine, and it just sort of like seemed to go away. Nothing. They seized my laptops. They took, they didn't even take my phones. They just took the laptops. They took a few little bits with them and that just sort of faded away. Now that was in 09 and I thought, okay, fair enough. We moved into 2010. I just carried on. I thought, well, let's, let's give it a couple of weeks rest. Let's see what happens. But nothing came about. So we just, well, let's fucking crack on then. So we, I reopened the business again about two, three weeks later on, started selling and we kept on going. And then it came to April the following year and they gave me a phone call. So we, we wanted to come down for a voluntary interview. Yeah, okay, no worries. So I went down to that, got solicitor down, had a volunteer interview, and it was just basically asking questions about, there was a couple of transactions of money going into someone's account up in um, Malvern area, and they wanted to question what that money was for. I said, well, I sold him a car. He said, yeah, that, there's, there's a document, that, that's the car he bought from me. It's registered in his name, it's mine. Why didn't you take the money all in one go? So we couldn't afford it. So we did it in little bits. Mm. And it was money for the car. They said, okay, yeah, fair enough, no further action. And the reason that no further action was taken was because I didn't realise that this time there was something else going on in the background. So around about the same sort of time in 2009, I think just slightly before that, round about the summer, there was a robbery involved um, at a plant nursery and it involved the guy that was working for me at the time and he was kind of like managing things for me. He was going to be the person that was going to take over my... Um, my sales, if like, I was going to give him the whole business, just give me a retainer. I'll, I'll go into that shortly. And there was a robbery involved in this nursery by some local gangsters. What they knew that they weren't just growing plants for to sell to the public. There were some mm. other plants going on. Mm. They knew that this this crop had come down. They wanted it, so they went as an armed robbery. And the lad that ran in to he basically got a call from his missus. I said, "Look, we're being robbed. Help!" So he was a builder. He ran into the uh, ran to the scene, drove in. Um, as he went, he had a taser with him and he ran into what he did. Instead of running into tackling these armed robbers, he ended up 
bumping into the police because someone had already called the police. Mm. So he's unaware that when he ran into something with a taser, the police were sat there waiting. They'd already arrived on the scene. So they arrested him, thinking he was part of the robbery. When they arrested him, they searched his premises, they searched everything, everything associated with him, and they searched some outbuildings. And what they found was a press and some moulds and some cutting agents. They didn't find any cocaine, but they found residue yeah. of the cocaine. So that then meant he was being watched and he was on a bit of a lockdown. So park that one for mm. now. So 2010 comes in. Best year and my worst year. So we started off, I'm going to be going now racing professionally. I'm going to be doing saloon racing, time attack. I sponsored a three-car team in the British Drift Championship, and it was a big mm. year. This was going to be the launch into my new business. The plan was that year is to really get out there, get social media going, get the car seen, get, get me seen, get everything known so I can open the garage in the end of that year. So we started looking, we found a location, me and this, the chap that was arrested the following year location we revamped this whole unit to create a really nice motorsport themed garage perfect that was during the back end of the summer of 2010 all that through that year i was racing it was just an incredible year massive outgoings but i was channeled now to making this business work to give up the drugs so we we opened the garage on the 1st of october 2010 was the grand opening day that was the that was the thing this was it now i'm ready i said to the guy right okay all i want to do is hand you the drugs business, give it a couple of weeks, let me, get some, let me pull some money in, I'm gonna hand it over to you, and then I just want a little retainer. Just chuck us four or five grand a month to cover the cost of the garage, whilst we get it self-sufficient mm. and it's up and running. And that was the agreement. 28 days later on, back in October, one of my runners gets taken down, and he's carrying one and a quarter kilos. Police on the M5, or just off the M5. I thought, shit, this doesn't happen. We, we, We've, we don't give any reason to be arrested. So he's had a, he's had a few run-ins with the police himself in times, but there's no reason for him to be nicked. So I shut down, he's remanded straight away. Um, I shut the business, shut down the drugs business thinking, this this is not good. I've lost one of the quarter kilos. I've now got to find 20, 30 grand to cover the cost mm -hmm. of that, which at the time I was actually skint because I've played everything into this garage. Yeah. Everything had gone into that. So it was beginning now, the drugs business was beginning to, to falter, beginning to fail because I just, I literally rinsed the fuck out of it to get this garage open so I could just leave it behind. And also I got a 30, 40 grand debt to play. Oh shit. So I thought, nope, I'm shutting down. So the guy that was arrested the previous year, he said, do you want to keep going? I said, no, I'm, I'm done. All my runners are gone. I've lost everything. I've shut it down. I've, I've shut down the whole enterprise. So let's, all right, okay, so we give it another month. He said, do you want to go again? I said, no, I'm not doing it. He said, go on, just do one more. So all right, fuck it, go on, I need the money. So I sent a runner, he got me a runner, sent this runner down south of Bristol, down towards, uh, just south of Bath. He picked some, some drugs up and he got arrested. Literally within 15, 20 minutes picking up, he got nicked. So that's two arrests in two deals in two months. Done nothing in between, I thought. Definitely on top. I'm 100% sure now that I'm being watched. So that was it. I shut the whole thing down completely. So that's it. Completely did, did, it destroyed a lot. So that's it. I'm having nothing to do with it. So New Year's Eve comes. It's a shit winter. 2010 was cold, really bad. I'm sat in a cold garage. I've got no customers because no one can afford nothing because it's a recession. I've got no money to keep it going. I'm selling off the assets because that's the only way to keep it going is because it's purely by selling stuff. The phone goes on New Year's Eve, it's a friend of mine. I said, just throw up a little bit of coke every now and again to you. So, can you help me out? I said, no, mate, you know, I'm done. So, 
please, it's New Year's Eve. I said, all right, I'll give you a number. So I give another number. I said, look, help him out, mate. I don't want nothing to do with it. Just do your thing. Mm. So New Year's Eve comes up. This is on the 30th, sorry. New Year's Eve comes up. And then I'll just assume they're going to go and do the thing. The phone rings is to the lad. I said, yeah, what's up, mate? So I can't get all your mates. I said, have you rang him? Yeah, he's not answering. I said, well, just, just keep fucking trying him, mate. Mm. Don't ring me. That's not going to help, is it? And the phone rings again. It's the other guy. I said, what? He said, you mate, I can't find him anywhere. I said, have you rang him? Well, yeah, but I said, well, don't ring me. Now I've got a phone call from both these people. Mm. They do their deal. Thought nothing that night goes, New Year's Eve, it's like half ten at night, a phone call goes from, from the guys buying it. He said, I just got out of the police station, mate. He said, what's that? He said, I just got nicked after buying that thing off your pal. For fuck's sakes. So that's three arrests yeah. in three months. That's the last cocaine I sold. Or last cocaine I had anything to do with. That was the New Year's Eve 2010. And then I'm now thinking, right, when are they going to come for me? Yeah. It's going to happen. Just when? Did you not think that way before? I should have done, yeah. But I think you're, you're pulled into this financial trap then. At this point then, I'm committed because I'm thinking, I'm going to get arrested. I just know it's going to happen. I just, I'm just kind of hoping that it's not going to happen. I'm so geared up to this exit strategy of the motorsport. I'm, I'm kind of pulled by that. I'm so busy thinking of that. I'm not thinking about what's going on on the outside of it. Mm. And that's the diff- that, that, I think, is the, the, the trap with drugs is... It's not not other people keeping it. You keep it. You keep yourself in it yourself by your own greed, mm. by your own desperation. Did you not think when the old Bill turned up from West Mercia, West Mercia Police, they all come in and oh, so, do you not think? Hold on a minute. This is on top. Stop. Cut everything. Only for a moment. Because you were greedy. Yeah. In that you had to fund your mm. sports car business because you wanted to get out of the drugs into sports yeah. car, live a clean life. Yeah. Everyone's happy. Yeah. But the. The addiction of earning quick money will never go. No, that's it. And, and it's that quick deal, is it? And, and that's the good analogy to use. It's quick money. It's far from easy. Yeah. It's not easy money, but it is quick and potentially lucrative. Mm. You stand to lose just as much, just as quickly. But that is there. It's the thought of like, just just keep it going. Just And how do you walk away? Let's say you spend years building a successful business. Mm. You put everything into you. You give it everything you've got. You you sacrifice everything to make it work. Yeah. And when it's finally working, that's when you should get out of the drugs game. When it's working. But why would you do that? I've spent years from it now, when it's finally making money. Mm. But that's the right time to walk away. Mm. You set you, you set your goal. You make your money. You get the fuck out quick. Mm. We've always got a comeback, haven't you? Yeah. You've always got a way to come back into it. So where was it? Where were you? What date was it? Where were you when you got nicked? So it's April the. Th- 13th, I think. I was sat in my garage. 2011, yeah. yeah. So we'd had a. Were you still at it then? No, all done. So you were clean for I, the last five I've months? I've not touched nothing since okay. the December. So okay. I literally, I was done and dusted. Yep. And we just, we'd now just sort of, we just moved into the motorsport season now. I think, right, we're into the motorsport season. Let's see if I can survive this. Get some customers online. So we'd had a good day at Castle Coon Race Circuit all day on the previous Saturday. We'd raised awareness. We're looking at the, the sun was out, it was getting warmer. I thought, you know what? gonna be all right yeah. I, don't, I think i might have just slipped through the net on this one foolishly thinking that so i sat in my garage on this tuesday morning and uh my garage kind of in the reception if you like my office is upstairs i'm sat in the reception just opening up before everyone gets there it's about eight o'clock i look out through a door to my left which looks onto a hard standing area where it's like like a tarmac area for all the, for all the cars there and it's just a little a show area if you like and i just saw 
three dark tires just sort of drift by the door just for that little slot this is it mm. in my I didn't say that I thought subconsciously thought this is it yeah. this is this is the police coming to arrest me now I thought I'd get up and go and have a look because I couldn't see I could just see the back of one car yeah. so I got up walked out saw three cars sort of debussing if you like with sort of like maybe 10 police officers sort of casually dressed with smart casual Definitely the police looking out for hundred percent is that the police. So they're, they're they're not coming for anything else other than to nick me. I said, Good morning, how you doing? I said, Rich Jones said, Yeah. And they walked over and the officer was really decent. He said, They're arresting you for conspiracies like cocaine or class A drugs, namely cocaine, blah blah blah. I thought, yeah, fair enough. You've got nothing to say, no, you've got nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. But it wasn't a traumatic event. Yeah. Still going to shock though, because although you're waiting for it, it's it's the it's the the thing that you've dreaded all these years. Yeah. All these in all these fifteen years of, of selling drugs, one of my first dealer ever said to me, he's a really good friend, he's out of it now. He said, When you get nicked, not if, when you get nicked, yeah. they said, they're gonna hit you with three things. Either it's gonna be possession, possession with intent, or conspiracy. He said, You don't want conspiracy, because mm. if they get you with that, you're fucked. And when they say conspiracy of that I thought back 15 years ago yeah. yeah he said that so straight away I thought oh I was so fucked what did the word conspiracy mean to you it just sounded like it was complex yeah, yeah. you know and, and, and the definition is of a conspiracy is an arrangement or a plan made by two or more people to commit a harmful or dangerous act that's, a cons that's the definition of a conspiracy I know it because it's read to me quite prominently by the police when they sat down and yeah. interviewed me so that was it I kind of like the, did, you, did you feel relieved? Yeah, about to say that. Totally. Like, yeah, like Jesus, come on top. Jesus, I'm, I'm relieved now. Just it mate, put me in, Nick. Yeah, because finally yeah. I thought I'm out of this. Yeah, I haven't died, and I almost made it because the garage was open on the first of October, but the investigation started on the 25th of September. Mm. So they they started watching me before. They were watching me for significantly. Like the mate, they were that. watching you for way longer than they that. They would go back a year yeah, easy, prior to that. So they, they, they had my name, yeah. they knew what was going on. Yeah. They, they were watching me, they are just waiting for the right moment. And they seized and they jumped on it when they knew I'd given up. Mm. So it was like the last hurdle. Did did you not think, like it's easy to look back now, but did you not think at the time, I'm, I'm clearing all this dough, happy days, into that business there. Did you not think someone looking at me go, that's pretty obvious? No, at the time you get, so, it's such a gradual build yeah. that you, you think, being clever right okay and although i was never done for money laundering i i i am aware that proceeds to crime act is a real thing and it's a real kick in the nuts mm. it's the sting in the scorpion's tail so mm. i was mindful that pocket is a thing and that assets will be taken and i need to be very clever yeah. about how i navigate that process mm. which you know i was hit with a pocket bill after i got the conviction how much it was just under half a mil of realisable of of benefit, which is quite low in consider yeah. in consideration, yeah. and seventeen grand in realisable asset, which which is next yeah. to nothing. Which I reduced out to five grand. That's one key. That's one. <laughs> yeah. So I dropped that. Got it in five k, yeah. which I'm I was happy with. Yeah. That. I was satisfied with that, and the the half mil was dropped down to one hundred twenty five okay. because of my audited accounts. What did they slap on you? How long did you get? Fifteen years. You got fifteen. Yeah. First offence. I only broke the law once, just did wow. it for a long time. Why did they give you so much, you reckon? So with conspiracy, yeah. when they weigh up, when they get, once they finally get the guilty, and it, I ran a trial, 
I was, I was arrested twice for conspiracy to supply. So one was by even the Somerset Soccer, which is now the N NCA. Yeah. And two months later on... Six Organised Crime Agency. That's then. it. Yeah, now yeah. it's NCA, the National Crime Agency. National, okay. So same thing, just yeah. different badge. Nicked twice, so I got found guilty on, on one, not guilty on the other, which is the correct outcome. And they weigh up the grander picture of the conspiracy, i.e., where do you sit within this attribution chart? So we've got three uh, three roles and four categories. You've got leading role, significant role, and lesser role. Then you've got a category one down to four. Now this will give you a chart of your roles and your categories, and it'll say, right, okay, so how much drugs were there involved in this conspiracy? Anything more than a kilo is category one. Yeah. So it's quite easy to get up to category one. Yeah. It doesn't take any consideration purity, it's the volume, yeah. but purity will go as an aggravating factor, which means Leading role will put you in, so if you are the leading role, you're detached from the thing, but you're you're orchestrating it, which I clearly was. Yeah. Your leading role, your category one, yeah, and that range is twelve to sixteen years. Starting point would be fourteen years. So right, let's look at your aggravating factors: purity, any violence involved, any guns, any any you know what have we got involved in that closeness to source are all seen as aggravating factors. Uh, mitigating reasons, what have we got to bring it down? We haven't really got any, have you? <laughs> it mm. is what it is. So they looked at the starting point and said, we're going to give you 15 years because you're fairly close to source. There was no evident violence involved, which there never was, because it's a business, but we're going to give you 15 years. Mate. And that's it. It took a while to get over on that. Did you, I was about to say, what was that feeling like when he said, you've got 15 years? And did you know, when you're serving up at the time you're thinking if I get nicked one day mm. I'm going to get a 7 I'll deal with it I'm going to get a 9 I'm going to get 11 did you ever think 15 no and how you put it across is, is actually spot on because as, as you progress through this industry and you climb which if you don't climb that's fine but if you climb you see people around you get arrested often only start off they're getting 6 months they get in a year Few years down the line, they get on, they're getting threes and fours, then they're getting sevens and eights, then they're getting nines and tens, and you're thinking, fucking hell, I'm doing more than they yeah. are. If I get nicked, I'm going to be looking at at least that. But you just kind of, you go on the basis that you just hope that you don't get nicked. Mm. So I was looking at the categories, looking at the role, so I, I know I'm leading role. I put myself insanely into category two, which my estimation then was between nine and 13 years. So I said, if I get about 10, because I served in the force, he's gonna, give me, he's gonna give me a touch. I had 10, maybe 11 in my mind. So I went into the sentencing with all the co-defendants that we had at the time. There were 13 of us arrested all together, sat there thinking, right, yeah, I reckon about 10 or 11. And my ex-wife, my dad, kids were in there obviously, and a few friends were in the public gallery. And when the judge gives you a sentence, he doesn't just say it like on the TV and slams a hammer and says, well, you're giving 15 years. He reads out a bit of spiel. He'll, he'll, he'll read as to why he's come to this conclusion and, and why he's given his such a significantly long sentence. And when it came to mind, he was just rattling off the stuff about mitigation, aggravating factors. And, and then, so I come to the conclusion, I'm going to give you 15 years. And he carried on talking. I thought, you, you, you what, mate? Yeah. I just thought, did, did he just say 15? I looked across at my wife and everyone like that oh. the jaws had dropped and i'm thinking he just said 15. so i thought Fuck, that's a long time and all i could do is they said take them down the back all i could do and looked across and i said i'll phone you later that's all i could do i couldn't think because i see my wife was getting you know, my wife was starting to sort of looks like she was going to have a, a breakdown um i saw the damage immediate sort of damage to them because they thought not only has he been found guilty but now he's been given 15 years and, and I 
created this um, utter bullshit that I didn't do it. Yeah. They thought I was their innocent. They thought I had nothing to do with it. Who did? The whole family. The whole family. I couldn't okay. come. I ran a trial because I didn't want to admit to them yeah. that I turned to this drug dealer. So did you go not guilty? Yeah, yeah. If you went guilty, what do you reckon you'd have got? I'd have got nine years, seven months. Did you know that? Yeah, because I had a co-defendant who was on the same level as I was, and he went guilty straight away because everyone knew what he was doing. He got nine, seven. What made you not want to go, just go, I'm guilty? I think two things. One was the chancer element of it. You know, I fancy a fight on this one. I quite like the idea of running a trial. Yeah. I never stood in a box before and, and, and had to yeah. argue with the prosecution. That's crazy. I was given relatively poor advice that you've got a good chance, you've got nothing on you. Fight it, okay, no problem. And the fact that if I, if I pleaded guilty and accepted the guilt, I'm opening the doors to everything they're going to throw at me. One of them is how do I admit to my dad, who I'm yeah. extremely close to, that I've turned into a drug dealer? And the other one is, if I say guilty on this, I'm accepting proceeds of crime. So there's not just a trial, you're fighting, just not just a trial for the conviction, you're fighting a trial for the pocker as well. So you, 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 you're accepting everything. And I wasn't willing to accept that, I thought, I'm gonna fight it. But in hindsight, the 15 years was necessary for me to achieve what I needed to achieve with regards to what I did in prison. What did you do in prison? So when I got locked up, seven and a half years of that is going to be inside. So you go to a category B prison initially, which is for longer termers. Um, not high security, but it's much higher security than a cat C. Spend two years getting yourself sort your shit out, get fit, get healthy. I was quite overweight. I was, I was unhealthy. So I got sort of my life out, focused on me. Two years of that, which changed my whole confidence levels. It, 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 it created a better version of me that I was happy with. Um, then I got downgraded my security to a category C, went to a place called HMP Oakwood, where I then looked at the support for veterans. Because when you go inside, for me, it, the immediate default was, I can do this because this is a very stag environment, as we mentioned earlier, yeah. there's a lot of blokes around there. Yeah. I can do this because I've done it before in the army. This is the same. I can cope with this environment. So you default to the military mind, you default to the guy that served in the forces. So that 15 years of being involved in drugs, that kind of counted a little bit because I understood the people in the prison. But the seven and a half years prior to that, being in the army, counted more because I could understand the environment. Yeah. And those two things collectively meant that I could thrive in prison. Hmm. So what, prison, what prisons did you go to over the, your period? Yes, yeah, so I started off in 2011 and remanded in Gloucester prison which was first time in jail. Quite nice to be fair yeah. for a Fred West was not was in there. Or Fred West used yeah. to be in there when he was knocking around. Um, local prison in Gloucester. It was okay. It was all right. I was in there for five weeks. I got a bell, came out. was on tag for nine months with a curfew. So hold, that on all, a hold on, hold on, hold on. You went to Nick, you got 15 years, yes. and then you got a bail. No, so pr leading up to that stage, when I was arrested the second time for conspiracy with Gloucester soccer, yeah. they remanded me. Yeah. Even as Somerset bailed me, Gloucester remanded me because they needed a bit more meat on the bone. Yeah. That's why I was arrested twice. So they remanded me into Gloucester jail with my oh, co-defendants. Right, okay. okay, before you got the 15 years. Before the 15, okay, yeah, fair yeah. enough. So then when I got the 15, I was then remanded into Bristol, yeah. which was, wasn't was ideal, but it was a local jail for me. I knew people in there. Um, in fact, I knew a lot of people in there, mm. which which made it quite comfortable for mm. me. And then when I got the 15 years, I was, sent, I was cat B, sent to Loudoun Grange in Nottingham, which is a privately run jail by Serco. Different world. Pro private prisons are tender to the government and they'll run it as a business. So a lot of aspects are a lot better. And what I mean by that is you're getting, you've got better cells. 
Sarah's in his cell, single cells. You got a phone in his cell. You 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 you've got, got a phone in your yeah, cell. Yeah, you got a phone. You what, to, a mobile or a no, or just a standard handset. Yeah, okay. But you rather than being on a wing phone in your, your standard public section yeah. prisons where you got to queue up, use a phone mm. which everyone's been screaming and shouting mm. at. You got a phone in your pad. So mm. You can ring up the missus in the evening. You can. It's it's a lot easier. So it made that two years really good. A lot better than I thought it'd be. Mm. So it means you're going to focus on yourself. Mm. And I got to HMP Oakwood in 2014 where I started focusing on veteran support, where my military mind had really installed that. And it was back in, I rebooted as a, as a squaddy again. I was beginning to understand the, the problems that we faced, or I, I reflected on my transition. I looked at where I struggled, where the difficulties I faced. And Oakwood allowed me to explore that even further because there was a, a director called John McLaughlin, and he's, I'm, I work with him now in a new prison I'm working in, is, he allowed me to focus on the veteran uh, support within the prison industry, mainly Oakwood at the time. And I looked at the difficulties that we faced and I created a program uh, called Project TLS. So when you come into prison, you'll be given a sentence plan by your probation. It'll say, right, you're in for drugs. Let's do a, uh, let's do a program on dealing with uh, you know, substance misuse, for example. Mm. You're in for anger, you're in for violence. Let's do an anger management. These kind of things, which mm. you do, of course, you tick a box, they lower your risk, they release you. Yeah. So I said to the team in charge of that, which is intervention, I said, look, are there any programs specifically designed for veterans that struggle with our transition or with our offending behavior? And they came back after about a week and said, no, there's nothing there. I said, all right, so I, now I was aware how much money could be paid in program delivery. Overheard someone mentioning that what they were due in from a prison. I thought, that's not bad. It's not quite cocaine money, but mm. it's not fucking bad. Mm. So I saw a hole, I saw a gap. There's no program for veterans, good money. I'm passionate about it. So I said to them, can I create a program? They said, well, yeah, go on then. As if to say, yeah, whatever, mate. Yeah. So three months later, I wrote Project TLS, a 12 module program, addressing transition with 12 different modules, produced this document to them, I said, there you go. I've learned, they got back about a day later and said, when do you want to start delivery? Yeah. So I'm ready to go now. So did you find, did you find that in the prisons there were quite a few veterans in the prisons who yeah. who have always struggled leaving the army haven't decompressed if they come from war yeah. they've been violent back here or they've turned to drugs or they've been serving up or whatever have you found there was a number of veterans in nick yeah approximately five percent is which, it five percent yeah which, which doesn't sound a lot but it is a lot it's about four thousand yeah across the prison estate and that's mirrored in the community as well so you've got about up to maybe eight or nine thousand um yeah, maybe 10,000 caught up in the CGS, mm. which is... CGS is what? Criminal justice system. Okay. But there's that's not accurate. That's only if they declare. Yeah. That's a declared veteran. So if they come in, if they don't declare they've served, you don't know that you don't even know they've served. Yeah. A lot of people don't think they qualify as a veteran. They think, well, you have to have been to war, yeah. or they might be too young to think the veteran is someone that's served. It's not some old duffer shaking a British Legion tin yeah. during Poppy Day. It's anyone that served in the forces is classed as a veteran. And have you, have you got to see all these stats when you're in there? They're like, okay, these are the stats. This is what we want, you, we want you to work on. And what are you actually doing to help these veterans? So I produce my own stats by researching the wings and picking them up myself. So yeah. I would go, I would literally go around the wings and, and pick them up from different departments and say, right, have you served? Yes, okay. So I would then deliver the programme to them where we cover the modules based on, on risk, substance misuse, mental health, money management, various aspects of the transition where I struggled. And I'll deliver the course to them, highlighting their problems and their areas and, and, and their weaknesses, their triggers. And with that, I then produce a care plan to probation mm. inside and out, and I'll then support them when they come out. So 
that was something I did in Oakwood for three years. Mm. So during my last two years in Oakwood, I, I was a Category D prisoner, which means you can get released on temporary license, means yeah. you get to go out the gates. How many, what, each day or? Yeah, every day, yeah, I worked outside the community every day. So part of that, of what I did, was making sure that the work I'd done inside the veterans had continuity, so make sure that I don't just do it in prison. I need to make sure I'm doing it on day release so that it's ready for when I come out of prison. Mm. I needed to build that business so that I hit the ground running. So my roles included not just going home to my wife and my children, yeah. but included going into military camps, speaking to recruits, going into police stations, talking to police about vet, setting up veterans champions mm. networks for support of veterans caught up on the streets, looking at homelessness, drug addiction, violence, all these different things. So I focus on these different areas, which there are holes in the service. There is other charities doing the work, but there's the national footprint. It doesn't really cover the whole area. Yeah. So there's significant gaps nationally mm. where we're not focusing on paper. What I've, what I've learned over the last couple of years of speaking to SAS, SBS, mm. veterans, is that the support system when people leave is really poor in this country. Shite. If you're American, you get given a house, you get every, all sorts. In the UK, the, the, the way I look at it is, when you join the forces, is, is that the, the part of you which, which should ask for help is trained out of you because it's seen as weakness or failure. So when things start going slightly south, which do start going south, if mm. you don't have the correct structure, the correct um, support networks mm. when they come out, if you don't have these things in place, you can turn the drink to drugs, mental health can kick in, yeah. and then you start to slide. Mm. But what normally happens in, in the forces, when you start to slide, you've got someone next to you will pick you up, say, yeah. come on mate, we're gonna be yeah. all right. You don't get that out there. Yeah. You slide, so what happens then is you become isolated, you, you detach from your support network mm. because you're embarrassed because mm. you're thinking I'm I'm just a burden to them, yeah. and then you don't ask for help because you think there's someone more qualified. Yeah. Common veterans now. No, I'm fine. I'm this, good. This, I'm good. That man yeah. there has lost his legs, or that lady there who's, who's yeah. been blown up. Give the help to them. I'm alright, but the help's there for everyone. Mm. There's no triage system. It's there. What was that feeling like when your boys, young boys, come saw you in prison? Now that's a tough one because. Spoke to someone about this earlier today. We have a meeting about I work with National Prison Radio, and I think the damage that is done to your children is significantly worse than you would ever ever imagine. Yeah. Because all that time through those fifteen years, well, I got involved in drugs. I didn't have any children. It's just me. So my head was always just me. I'm gearing myself up to be caught. But well, at some point, I'm going to get caught. Mm. I don't know when, don't know how, but it's going to happen. But not for one moment did I think to consider how that would affect my children when their dad gets caught, when their dad is taken away at the age of just, of just turned seven and 13. Young age, impressionable age, really bad. Mm. And the first visits in prison was, I think, helped me to realize the damage that had been done because I was in Loudoun Grange. They came in, they were really happy to see me. I was kind of like, didn't want to see him in that environment because it's not the best environment. Mm. And I remember that we had a good two hour visit and it came to the end and it's very abrupt. Like, right, everyone, visits over, head back to the wings, that kind of thing. It's not violent, but it's just abrupt. Mm. And my youngest stood there, he said, Dad, I don't want you to go, I want to go with you. And that broke oh. my heart. And I yeah. sat there thinking, oh, he's crying, I'm fucking crying. Mm. Visits one, I thought to myself, I can't do this, mm. I can't do it. So what I did is I ended up boxing off my emotions 
compartmentalize them. I just, for any feelings I've got for people that I love and care about, I cannot allow myself to feel that anymore because I won't, I won't survive in this environment yeah. if I'm thinking about how they are, which was great doing your sentence because it means I didn't have to worry about knowing because I literally shut them out completely. Yeah. Not school when they come and well, not school when they come and do visit you because there's no emotion. Yeah. I'm like a rock. I'm sat there and I see they're my kids. I love them dearly, but I didn't feel mm. that. I didn't feel the love. Mm. And that that's back now. It, it, it's really back now. But when I first came out of jail, I didn't have that attachment. Mm. It took a good while to, to re sort of rebond. And when you come out of Nick, when did you write the book Charlie Four Zero? Charlie Four Kilo. Charlie so I, Four I, Kilo. I did that. that one. <laughs> when yeah, you well, wrote, I wish it was Charlie Four Zero. zero yeah, with, with any money. <laughs> Charlie Four. Tell me about the book Charlie Four Kilo. So basically, I had a, a, a game plan when I was getting arrested and going through the trial process. I thought to myself, if I get away with this, with it, and I run off into the sunset, and I think, yeah. happy man. If I get caught, I'll consider a book. I never quite knew what format it was going to take. So when I was on my day releases, working in the, uh, the visiting centre outside the prison, I had access to a laptop and I was doing me, my programme work and everything else. I thought, start writing a fucking book yeah. here. So I sat there, I just thought, what should I call it? I don't know. I didn't, I, it was going to be called The Lost Soldier because I just lost myself completely in, in society when I came out. And that was the name was to, was to call it A Lost Soldier. So that's going to be the character yeah. is me. So... I wrote the book over a period of about a year when I was on day release. And then when COVID kicked in, when I got out and all my plans to go back into the prison. What year did you come out? July 2019. 2019. So the aim was to come out in 2019, give it six months cool off. And the aim was to arrange with a director to go back into the prison and deliver the programme paid. Remember this loopholes that about mm. this, this gap in the market to go back in, earn a good wage, support veterans. Everyone's a winner. Happy day. So that was planned for the 1st of April 2020. Of course, COVID decides mm. to come and kick us, kick us all in the ass. Mm. So we go into lockdown phase and I'm thinking, we're locked down. What should I do? I thought, fuck, I've got a book here. I can finish writing that mm. book off. So I cracked the book and I, I got hold of a publisher. Luckily, there was a chap, a friend of the family, written a book called Course on Chopper, ex-police force, ex-bodyguard. He said, I've got a guy who's, who's doing my book now. He said, I can introduce you. So I went to him and said, this, there's the first five chapters. Have a look, see what you think of it. He said, this has got legs. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. We'll, we'll, we'll do it for you. He said, what's your word count? So I'm on about 75,000 now. He said, how far through are you? So I'm about halfway. So I've got to do three books. Mm. So I start. I want to start it in the middle is, is part two because I thought it's got to do in the middle. Then I'm going to go a little bit Star Wars. Mm. He said, I advise you to try and cap it about 80,000 words because mm. you go any more than that, it gets a bit long-winded. I thought, okay, yeah. I thought, fucking, I've got loads left yet. He said, well, can you can you nip it in the bud and finish it early and do a, another part and make it a, a four-part series, not a three-part series, a four? Yeah, I can do that. So I nipped it in the bud at the point where i just come out of the hospital where, I don't want to give it away, but yeah, I, I, I shut it off a bit abruptly, but it's a good finishing point. So mm. the aim was to call it The Lost Soldier. He said, but you've Googled that name, haven't you? He said, there are a lot of different Lost Soldiers come up. This is before the username on TikTok mm. or anything else. He said, you've got a movie called that. There's a video game called that. He said, you're going to get swamped. There's a mm. new title. You're going to get swamped. He said, why didn't you call it the subtitle? Why didn't you call it Charlie Four Kilo? Mm. It's a good name. Perfect. Though. He said, it's, it's got your phonetic alphabet. Mm. It's got military look to it. And it designates the amount of yeah. stuff that you got nicked with. It's a great name. Good name. Where was the Where was the point when you were getting nicked before you got nicked? I just want to roll back a bit here. Yeah. Were there any snitches grasses involved? Oh, yeah. Plenty. I know exactly who they are as well. 
You know who they are. Yeah, yeah. How do you get to know who they are? Is there a report? By, have you read a report? Or no, you... no, no. You, you, can, you can make educated guesses as to people that may or may not have been arrested around that time. Now, I've do three, four people in the frame. And the, the good thing about it is, is I don't mind. I don't care because I'm not the one that's got to live with that. Um, when I went away, I spent a good few years being really bitter. because One, because I was owed a load of money. And secondly, because I found out that we, we've been informed, our whole organisation had been informed upon. And I was really bitter about it, understandably thinking, I'm doing this time, but I'm thinking to myself, no, they've actually done me a favour because I'm, I'm kind of getting on with it now. And in 2015, I had this sort of like an epiphany, I guess. I thought to myself, if I keep carrying this baggage of money that's owed, and if I keep hating on the people that have informed on me because they've, they've got no guts themselves to stand up and be convicted, mm. so I'm going to carry that for a very long time. It weighs you down quite mm. significantly. It's a lot of weight to carry. So I just literally binned it overnight. I said, right, that's it. I'll write the debts off. And I'm just going to, these people that have, have snitched on me, I'm just going to forgive them. I don't care, I don't want to see them again. Have you seen these people since you've been out in the last no, couple of years? No. Do you know where they are? No. Have you looked them up? No. I don't want to. I, I'm you not just interested. cleared it out of your head? Yeah, just, okay. they don't exist. Yeah. They, they, do, they just don't exist in my What mind. sort of debt were you due when you were uh, in Nick? Enough for a good size semi-detached house. Okay. Down here. So it's enough? Yeah, enough to start off, but it quarter of a know, mil, three hundred grand, yeah, roughly quarter, around there. Quarter of a mil there. Okay. Place. Yeah. Okay. I thought myself, it's a lot of money, but at the same time, easy come, I never easy had go. it. Yeah. I never had the money. Just passing money around, and which is a, it's yeah. a ticking time bomb waiting to get nicked. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, is. everyone yeah. I've had on the podcast, it's a ticking time bomb yeah. waiting to get nicked. Yeah. And anyone and, listening out there, if you're involved in the game, mm. your advice would be don't do it. Walk away now. Yeah. Because. Because it's not the knock-on effect of you. You get in a nick, you can switch your emotions off. You're going, you know, yeah. I saw my two boys, I was really upset. Saw my missus, I was really upset. My old man ain't going to be happy because he's a copper. Yeah. But I'm switching my emotions off. You're all right yeah. in you're there. Fine you've in got there. a nice bed, you've got a telephone, you've got the boys around you, you've got three meals a day, you're playing a bit of sport. Yeah. The knock-on effect for your poor kids at school, yeah. knowing that their dad has been banged yeah. up, and or your wife... And the mental torture, and you not knowing whether your wife—I don't know whether the, you being banged up is whether your wife sleeping with someone else, or whether yeah. your kids—you you don't know what's no. going on. And the mental health, the, the effect that has on their mental health is 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 devastating. My my youngest son's mental health was took a real bad knock, as did mine. I mean that that's the the way that his mental health went is what has driven me towards support mental health now. I mean yeah. I, I'm now qualified as an EMDR practitioner. Yeah. I. I support people who struggle with PTSD. Yeah. That's what I do. I yeah. go out there and one of part of one of the many things I do is because of seeing how how it changed my life with, mm. with PTSD and, and what I've been through, how it changed my son's life, I get I got qualified about a month ago mm. and I'm I'm doing the same thing now. Mm. But being involved in crime will, will never end well. No it doesn't. Never ends well. In the period of those fifteen years of being in crime, do you think you were incredibly selfish? Yeah, but you don't think you are. Mm. I think even if you're flamboyant and sharing and, and enjoy, not just enjoying that, that money yourself, you're still selfish because emotionally, how could I ever be really, really a proper dad, for example, when I'm focused on not getting caught? How can I really provide them with a safe household when any minute the police could come through the door, which they did, mm. or... Gangs to come through the door, which they could, mm. but they never did, but they could. 
that's selfish alone. That's not yeah. good for their development, is it? Yeah. So it's a selfish industry, and you mm. become. Although I wouldn't class myself as a selfish person, I, I made selfish decisions. Yeah, Rich, this has been really fascinating. Thank you. A really fascinating story going from army to a chancer to become a little raver to selling a few pills to selling cocaine to selling bigger lobs of cocaine and then getting nicked yeah and i've seen this story time and time again where it just starts from that little bit of percy for yourself yeah i get a freebie i can go on a night out a little bit later i've, I've served up there i've got a couple hundred quid then it's a grand then it's 10 grand it's 50 grand 100 grand and all of a sudden they're just waiting for you yeah then you're, then you're doing time thinking then, ain't worth anything 15 years mate long time doesn't finish till 2027 is that right yeah. and you're still paying off yeah yeah. You say but it doesn't finish at 27, what doesn't finish? I'm on licence. Which means what? It means probation. Which so means what? means every month pop in, great relationship, probation are really good, they, they support everything I'm doing. You go abroad? Certain countries you can, certain you can't? I'll probably not have much chance of South America yeah. or any Americas <laughs> yeah. anymore. Uh, I haven't tried yet, I've not asked. Yeah. I, I probably could, yeah. but I've not asked yet. I'm too busy, I'm too too busy working at the minute and I've yeah. not even thought about abroad. Yeah. Maybe skiing next year. Rich, where can people find you? So... Websites are up, so I've got website I am Rich Jones. I am Rich Jones. I am Rich Jones. Yep. I've got my project project hyphen TLS That's the military one. I'm on social media, TikTok, which is the big one. If I'm not being banned, tell me why you're getting banned on TikTok. People get upset because I'm quite honest about my background. So there are people who are professional to being offended on other people's behalf. Yeah. And they're the ones get upset. Give me an example of why you're going to be banned on TikTok, why you have been banned on TikTok. <laughs> um, I think if someone trolls me, I'm not afraid to fire some fucks back into them. Yeah, okay. And they will just get upset because I can be quite um, open about how things are. And yeah. I've managed to to control rain that rain it back slightly <laughs> but people pick up old posts yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't say that you're promoting I'm not promoting anything yeah. I'm just being honest <laughs> Rich you're a star mate you thoroughly enjoyed care. it thanks Thank for your you. honesty Cheers, good man <laughs>